Hello and welcome to Giant Mess, a super sloppy sports and entertainment talk show about the New York Giants, New York Mets, movies, TV, comedy, and a whole lot more. It's hosted by a giant mess. That's me, the real cinch, Neil Lynch. I'm a plump and furry Irish-Italian-American who graduated from a Catholic high school but is not Catholic. I graduated from a college known for producing doctors, cross players, and I became neither. Instead, I'm a celebrity. Get me out of here. You can leave me a voicemail at 862-BIT-1986. That's 862-BIT-1986. You can subscribe to me on YouTube by going to youtube.com slash Lynch or slash Real Cinch. You can follow me on my official blog. It's neillynch.com. If you don't know how to spell it, you don't deserve to go to it. Learn how to spell. You can hit me up on Facebook, facebook.com slash giant mess. You can visit me on Twitter, Instagram. I'm real cinch on each of those platforms. Be sure to subscribe to me on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you put podcasts into your head. On this week's episode, we're going to be talking about Halloween. A Halloween recap. What I did and what I watched. It won't be long, trust me. And then we'll uh, recap the Giants Week 8. Soul obliterating loss to the Tom Brady's Buccaneers. We'll preview. We won't even preview the week nine game against the Washington football team. Okay. We're just going to take a look at the upcoming schedule. And I'm going to tell you how I think the Giants are still, after a one and seven start, going to make the playoffs. <laughs> and we'll finish out with the Mets. Some what ifs. What if the Mets don't re-sign Marcus Showman? What if they don't sign George Springer? What if they don't sign JT Ramoto? We'll also look at some more free agents to consider. And some more trade targets. Plus some trade destinations for Ahmed Rosario and Dominic Smith. So with that, let's get started. Last weekend was Halloween. How was your Halloween? Great. My Halloween? Great. Great. We talked about Halloween. Moving on. No. Not much to talk about here. We didn't, uh, we got two costumes for the little one. Uh, we got a, Owlette costume from PJ Masks. If you're not familiar with PJ Masks, oh my goodness, dude. What an absurd children's animated series. I don't understand how it got the green light. I don't understand how it's not under investigation from some kind of parenting committee, but it's about a bunch of little children who, instead of going to bed, tucking themselves in and like dozing off, put on masks. And uh, their pajamas. And they turn into superheroes and they fight crime during the nighttime. The lyric from the show is, Nighttime is the right time to fight crime. PJ Masks. So what what I'm confused about is they're, they can only fight crime during the nighttime? So like crimes happen all the time. Like in the daytime. So when a crime happens during the day, 
they have to wait till nightfall to put on their PJs to get out there and kick some evil butt? What's going on there? Can they not put the PJs on? If they put the PJs on during the day, do they not transform into superheroes? These are the things I think about. But she loves uh, Owlette, who is the the sole hero lady, sole female heroine on the show. It's uh, her, and then there's Catboy and Gecko. Greg is Gecko. Connor is Catboy. Greg's a blonde. Connor, possibly mixed. Might be Hispanic. I don't know. He's got olive skin. And then you have a Maya who likes to wear glasses at the age of, I don't know, six, which seems a bit premature. I know my sister wore glasses pretty early on. And yeah, parents, it looks cute, but like, do the kids need it that quick? Let's pump the brakes on the glasses on the kids. You got that whole, what's that kid's name from Jerry Maguire? And then you have Ralphie. Yeah, I guess a lot of kids do wear glasses, but it's like, just seems like you're you're just growing up too fast. Just let let adulthood come to you. You know what I'm saying? Don't chase adulthood. So she's a a Maya, aka Owlette from PJ Masks. We also ordered uh, my wife ordered a second costume, Marshall from Paw Patrol. So those are the two big ones: PJ Masks, Paw Patrol, or Dasha, Dasha, as uh, Brie likes to call it, Dasha. Dog Shaw, which is a toddler for dog show. And, uh, you know, there are a bunch of dog shows out there. Westminster being one. Uh, Puppy Bowl. So, I mean, you know, but we know. I mean, there was a Puppy Dog Pals. That could be the dog show. But we ran through that quick. So I think we're now running through Paw Patrol, which there's there's a lot of seasons of that. So she's Marshall. She loves the Dalmatian, the clumsy, klutzy Dalmatian, who's also the firefighting dog. Wears a firefighting hat and goes around with his little fire engine truck and his ladder and typically goofs up, messes things up. (laughs) What that says about my daughter, I don't know. She's going to end up with some goofy, doofy firefighter. But hey. Respect your heroes, you know, first responders, always and forever should get discounts. So I didn't realize that the that the Marshall dog costume was coming Saturday morning and we were in a bit of a bind Saturday because like, you know, I, I and I, I used to have a shirt and it said, I support single moms. Okay. Full transparency. If I ever run for office, doubt it. Here are the skeletons in my closet. Skeleton one. I had a, I support single mom shirt and it had a silhouette of a stripper on a pole. Okay. Now, if you want to take that seriously, if you are a stripper and you do take offense, I apologize. I, but it's also pro stripper in a way. It's also pro single moms. The way I look at it, my spin zone. But yeah, once I got together with Cassie, that shirt was in the garbage very quickly. It's like, hey, I think, I think we should, I think we should become exclusive. I think we should only date each other. And by the end of that sentence, that shirt was in the trash compactor. 
So, but I bring that up because Cassie had to go support a friend on Friday into Saturday. So she was not around uh, Friday into Saturday. And so I had to take care of the little one, which when it's confined to the home and the house, it's like, and we don't have to go anywhere. Easy peasy, one, two, three, Z, super cheesy. Just pop on the TV. And I know we're not supposed to watch TV. I know she's addicted to TV because every time she comes home from school, she's constantly pointing to the TV and saying, Dasha, 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 Dasha. And then it just like, if we don't put it on, she just decompensates. But so that's fine. I can handle that, I think. And But whenever I have to go anywhere with her, just me and her, and there's a lot of crap, a lot of stuff I have to transport, it just never turns out well. And uh, I, I get in my own head. And I don't know if I'm getting too in my head or if this is a legitimate concern that, uh, you know, because I care what people think about me. <laughs> That's my entire life. I have only cared about what other people think about me. Horrible trait. But so Saturday when we're like running around or I'm running around trying to get her dressed, change a diaper, get her dressed. Oh, you just shit yourself while the minute I got all your clothes on and now we had to take all your clothes off to change the diaper. Great. Trying to get the shoes on, trying to get the sweatshirt on, trying to get the coat on, trying to get the hat on, trying to get the mittens on. And also trying to pack, trying to shower. You don't think about these things when there's another adult in the vicinity because then the other adult, it's just, it's just, you know, Hey, watch her while I do this. Watch her while I do this. Watch her while I do this. There is no watch her while I do this when you're the only one doing it. So it's like, you have to bring her, lure her into the bath. You know, I had to take a shower. So I had to lure her into the bathroom with promises of toys and books and all these things she can enjoy. And she actually did not freak out, which was great. But then it's like trying to get dressed, trying to pack while she wants so many things that she cannot say, which has to be super frustrating on her, on her part. Let me tell you something, sweetheart, equally frustrating on my part to not know what the fuck you want. So, and if that's not the, the crew d'etat, that's not the, the cream, that's not the cherry on the top of the Sunday, shit Sunday. It's trying to get all this stuff for one night. It's literally one night away from this, from this townhouse that we rent. And it's not going very far, and it's one night, and I had a bajillion bags stuffed to the gills with all the, uh, how do I put it, backup scenarios, plan B's, plan C's, not plan B the pill, but plan B, like actual plan B, plan C, plan D. Like I'm just throwing all kinds of her clothes in there because I'm like, well, she'll probably vomit on this one. She'll shit herself, it'll spill out, and then we got to change her, and then maybe she'll fall in some mud and we got to change her again. It's like, you know, we can't just run upstairs. If we're here, we run upstairs, change it out, great. But there, it's like so many things could happen, and we don't have clothes. So just bring like a week's worth of clothes just in case she just rifles through them. And then uh, my clothes and then the costumes that I'm supposed to bring, the rain boots because we're supposed to go to a parade and then might go to a playground that has mud. Awesome. So you have to, you have to like all these things. And so trying to pack the car 
with her hyper laser focused on me and my every move. And then the, the, then knowing that two cats in the mix. So normally no two cats, no pets. I could just leave the door open and come in and out freely and we're good to go. But knowing that I need to get this stuff in the car and I need to get, I need to not have her wander out of the door or open the door so the cats can get out. I decided to put her in the car first. And I was like, I'll put her in the car first, secure her, isolate her. ISO. It's an ISO play. When ISO the mic, the linebacker, the middle linebacker, isolate her in her car seat and she's going to cry and I'm, and we're going to, that's fine. To me, it's fine because I know she's safe. I put you in there to get you out of the way so I can get all the crap into the car that for one night away. And as I'm doing it, I keep forgetting things and I keep having to run back. So it wasn't just one trip. It was one, two, three, four. It was four or five trips. The whole time she's screaming her face off, her head off in the car seat. And I can only imagine, and as this is happening, in my head, all I'm thinking is, the amount of people in this complex who are looking at a screaming toddler in the car and uh, perchance not seeing me running in and out, just like in the three to five seconds that I'm inside the house, they just see this child with the windows up in a car <laughs> by herself. So, uh, yeah, had that going, had severe anxiety from that. Like, oh, here comes Dyfus whistling down the road. But, Eventually got our asses in gear, and by the time we got to where we needed to go, we missed the parade. And then by the time, we didn't even get to where we wanted to go until pretty much almost sunset, sunfall, because this is the day before daylight savings. By the way, daylight savings kicks in. It was it was dark at 4.30 today. What the fuck is going on? Why? Is, why? Why? I don't understand. How was that? How was there? What? It's not even quitting time and the sun has punched out for the day. Get the F out of here. So, but we got down to where we needed to be. And by the way, my, we went to uh, my mother-in-law's first and my sister-in-law was there and she's watching the Hocus Pocus, but it was on E possibly no freeform and freeform has this like pop-up movie edition where it's kind of like pop-up video if you remember back in the day if you don't remember back in the day pop-up video it's because you are too young do your homework and so watching like a couple of pop-ups were like oh yeah it's interesting and i think some of them were good but then the the scene in hocus pocus the three which sanderson sisters are trying to get on a bus and they, they get on the bus and the bus driver's talking to them. And the bus and the bus driver is laying it on thick. He's like, whoa, ladies, ladies, where are we going? And so the pop-ups were cringe, double cringe, triple cringe. Let me tell you something. That's comedy at its best. If you're not, if you're cringing at that and not laughing at that, can't be friends. What a great scene. Just a phenomenal scene. I want to bottle that scene. I want to drink it. And then I want to wear it as cologne. 
So, uh, but we, we ended up, uh, we finally got over to where we needed to be. And I brought my dinosaur costume course trying to find like, you know, th- there's this thing that married couples do. I assume, I know we do it where there's like an inherent trust and like, you don't want to not trust your partner and you don't want to call them out or you don't want to check because then that, that ruins the, it kind of ruins the relationship. It kind of eats away at it. So when my wife says, uh, don't forget the costumes, don't forget the rain boots. Costumes are in this bin. Do I look back at our history and say, hmm, maybe I should check that bin before I'm running around with my my dick in my hand and my hair on fire? Like, should I look in that bin just to make sure that the costumes are there and have some peace of mind? Or should I just trust my wife that she knows they're both in there? She's probably looked, you know, she's so sure and confident when she says it. And of course, as I'm running around trying to get into this car, get to this parade, da 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 I go to the bin, I pull out my Godzilla lizard onesie, which I wore four years ago. This is the first, I think this is the... Yeah, it's the first time I've ever repeated a costume and my ever, you know, if you want to see my Halloween costume history, you need to go back to last year's Halloween episode where I recanted, recounted, recanted, recounted probably like 20 plus years of Halloween costumes. So this is the first time I've ever repeated one. You know, shit happens. Just too busy. Just not able to decide pandemic, election, I don't know, all kinds of excuses flying around. But first time I repeated it, and hers is a unicorn onesie. We wore it when we went to Columbus, Ohio. We wore it to the zoo, and it was it was great. It's a, it's a great, I mean, my wife wore it, like, in the house, like, repeatedly over the next year because it's just so damn comfy and it looks great. But couldn't find the unicorn onesie. And do I have the time... You know, when I thought I had to be there at a certain time and then I get on the, I say, I apologize. I say, where's your costume? Oh, I'm on a call. Oh, okay. Well, then I got to go. We're, we're late. And then I get on the road and it's like, well, take your time. It's like, okay, well, I'm halfway there. Whoa. I'm living on a prayer. So no unicorn onesie. I feel really bad for my wife. She didn't have a costume. I had a costume. The baby had a costume with a backup costume that I didn't bring. I wasn't sure what the game plan was there. So she was outlet. And then we ended up dressing her in Marshall costume when we got home on Sunday or Monday. And now she wears the Marshall costume and, and she's never been happier wearing the Marshall costume. Meanwhile, the PJ mask costume, she can wear for maybe five and a half seconds before she's ripping it all off. So it's like, ah, coulda, woulda, coulda, shoulda, but, uh, but yeah, she's like now Brie just wears the Marshall dog Paw Patrol costume and it and it, it just, she lights up every time she's in it and she wears it to bed and she's wearing it all the time. It's like, yeah, okay, great. Meanwhile, the first time we put on the PJ masks, Alette mask, she did this thing where she's just kind of like, whoa, like looking around like, what's a whole new world? Like can't even understand what's happening because I don't think she fully realizes that she has the two eyes and each eye kind of operates in conjunction with together, but also separately. And there was never, 
it's like she's never noticed her nose. Like if you close one eye and look to the left with your right eye, you can see the nose. And then you look, close the right eye and look to the left. And then you just don't kind of, you just take it for granted, I guess, or you don't notice it until you focus on it. Meanwhile, the mask sticks out enough for her to notice it. So she's kind of sitting there like, whoa, what am I? Who am I? Just existential as fuck. And uh, so that was cool. And she was asking for it. But then, you know, we get there and it's, it's like maybe, yeah, like five and a half minutes tops in that costume. Uh, but she had a blast. You know, the, the, the friends we the friends we went, the friends place we went to, the friends have a daughter, same age, similar age. And uh, we brought out the car again, except this time it was nighttime. So last time it was daytime. This time it was nighttime. And the car that my mother-in-law gave our daughter has functioning headlights. Game changer. I was, I was like, you know, I was a couple of pumpkin beers deep. Also, the cocktails, the stiff cocks we had. Whew, very nice. It's uh, apple cider, ginger beer, vodka with dry ice. That creates these smoky, foggy little effect coming off the drink. Very spookalicious. Very, very nice. And so I had a couple of those, a couple of pumpkin beers. Of course, uh, I, you know, I've said it last week. I'll say it again. 2020 has trained me to not care as much anymore about my life or health or anything like that any possible negative outcomes because it's like yeah it's probably going to happen anyway so why fight it you know why try and take preventative measures so when our host our friend makes this she she's like she says just don't drink the dry ice okay if you drink the dry ice it'll be a problem so when she puts the dry ice in the drink you see all these little white bubbles I guess they look like little white. I'm trying to think of, they're not dots, but like the, the candies or the mints that are like literally white circles, spheres. And it just looks like a bunch of those are popping up. And I'm like, all right, <laughs> let's do this. Let's try not to kill ourselves on Halloween night. No big deal. But this car has functioning headlights. And so I got my hands on the controller and I had just had them driving through the night guided by headlights. Of course, I did hit a sewer pipe. Didn't realize that was like a thing in a person's yard that just sticks up out of nowhere. So I got caught on that. But otherwise, pretty cool to have them side by side in this, uh, I don't even know, Range Rover RC car with functioning headlights. We're definitely not spoiling her, are we? Um. But that was fun. And the whole setup is interesting because historically, traditionally, Halloween, you have you have the kids come to the door and they ring the doorbell. And then you, you put out your bucket of candy. In our case, it's the, the Hocus Pocus book. Oh, book. Throw that out there. Little fun size. Please take one. They usually don't. And you don't yell because it's like, whatever. You're only a kid once, as Drake would say. So, but this one was different. This one is like everyone in the neighborhood kind of got together in the little Facebook group and said, we're going to have the candy on a table at the end of the driveway, each driveway. And then, you know, put yourself, you can hang it outside just to make sure things are kosher. Just put yourself like at least six feet back from that table. And in, in our case, 
there were some people with bonfires, which looked real nice. Love bonfires in the fall. But we had the kind of a tailgate situation. Like the host put up a tent, a little Penn State tent, and then they had the chairs around it and serving drinks. And then they had a cooler, and the cooler, they put some water in, and then they put the dry ice in the cooler. And then we had a tray with light up shots on the tray. So you had the lights going in the cooler that made it look like a cauldron. I called it a cauldron. Hashtag dad jokes. That's just what I do. I also had like a beer bottle koozie that when you put a beer can in it, or like a tall boy, kind of looks like a vampire collar. And it's a vampire plus a koozie. So I call that a dracuzzi in honor of Dracula, who I suspect was a big, I suspect it was a red wine guy. So I don't know if that's uh, appropriate, but it looked like a, it looked like Dracula's cape and collar on my beer can. So should I copyright that? Should I trademark that? No, because why would I want millions of bajillions of dollars? Why? It's not, it's just money, more money, more problems, you know? But we had a good, good old time. Chicken quesadillas. They made uh, Rice crispy treats in the shapes of pumpkins. Who does that? What are we doing? And then it was just, you know, after we put the, the little ones to bed, you know, got a little, got around to heads up and just ate a bajillion chips. Bar- kettle, kettle barbecue, something from Cheez-Its that aren't Cheez-Its, but called Snaps that aren't exactly the same as Cheez-Its. You know, tostita, like the tortilla chips, there's just a whole nine. Did a little red wine tasting test. Discovered, like, you know, I, it's amazing how things change and life changes and how people change. There was a time where I was a waiter at the old mill inn in like Spring Lake Heights, probably New Jersey. And they were like, uh, name three wines. And I was like, red, white, and rose. And uh, they still gave me the job, but it seems like you should probably have named more than <laughs> you should probably should have named actual varietals like Cab Sav, Merlot, Malbec, Pinot Noir, that kind of thing. But I didn't, and I still got the job. But now it's, uh, you know, at a young age, it's like, look at these people that try and like, um, not consigliaries. Well, the wine experts, some sommeliers, they do this thing where they twirl the glass and they sniff it and they drink it. And you see people who are not sommeliers do it. And you're like, you're a douche. You're pretentious. What are you doing with your life? But then you realize it actually has a function to it. <laughs> like I got, we actually learned like when you do swirl it, you're supposed to look and you'll see what they call legs dripping down. So you swirl it. And then the the liquid will will kind of waterfall down and it will look like they call it legs. I don't know. It looks like more like uh, uh, tentacles or like you know this the the legs on the ghosts in Pac Man, I guess. But like the thicker the legs, the more alcohol. The thinner the legs, the less alcohol. I don't know. It was a nice little education in how to appreciate wine. Whereas where now I see it, other people do it and I'll be like, okay, you're you're evaluating. You're not just trying to appear important. Um, so that was fun to take play, take part in and understand that. And then we played a little Jack in the Box. If I, I mean, I haven't played it. In, we haven't played it in a while, probably since the wedding in Hawaii. But 
a fun game where you all log into a website. You can play on your your smartphone, your cell phone, and there's there's fibbage where you have to tell a lie, and then people guess which is the truth. And then you have like drawful, where you know, it's kind of like Pictionary. They give you a clue, and then you have to draw it, and people guess, enter their guesses. And then you can pick what you think it is and then, but also pick the answer you like the most. And there was, a, you know, a lot of great moments. Whereas heads up, you play, you can actually save the video or share the video because, you know, you place it on your forehead and it's taking video of the people that are giving you clues and it's hilarious. But with Jack in the Box, they don't have that feature. And I think that it would really take off. If you haven't played Jack in the Box, it's, it's awesome. I mean, there's trivia. So I think there's trivia, fibbage, drawful, and there might have been one more category, but it's a it's an amazing game, and I would just love to share it with the world. Make it shareable. Probably is, and I just didn't realize it. So that was good times. Really enjoyed it. Um, had a conversation about candies. Because I know that uh, Barstool Chicago had the Halloween candy draft with Clem from the Clem. Uh, and, you know, there was a lot of interesting picks in that draft and no one. So there's probably, there was Carl, Eddie, White Sox Dave, Chief, Clem. So it's five people. I think there were five rounds, maybe. Not one of them drafted crackle or nestle crunch because i was saying like when we were kids that was always part of the mix and i have not seen crackle or nestle crunch since i was a kid i don't know if they went out of business it discontinued i decided to look up like nestle crunch like what's the deal and it turns out that it got bought out by some other company but apparently like nestle is one of the world's most corrupt companies and I was like, oh, that's an interesting headline. Click on it. It's like, and then you go down the rabbit hole. And I was like, it's Halloween. I don't know if I need to be delving into how corrupt a chocolate candy company is. <laughs> but, I mean, Crackle versus Crunch, who you got, basically. That's a tough one. Also, Hershey's chocolate bar, just a plain Hershey's chocolate bar. Not on the list. How do you not draft that? It's just reliable, easy. You get to snap off the little rectangles one by one if you get the full size. I mean, uh, yeah, I guess the fun size, not as fun. Interesting how that works. But Crackle versus Crunch, who you got? I don't know. I feel like I'd go with Crackle. I mean, it's the same exact thing, right? And I think Crackle's underestimated. I think Crunch has the more name recognition you know, I think it's more widely distributed. I think more people know about it. And I think Crackle comes into your bag and you, you kind of dismiss it because you're like, well, I have Crunch. What the hell is this Crackle shit? Like, I'm just going to leave that for last or maybe trade it. And then you end up trying it and you're like, whoa, this is the basically like Crunch. And then you start organizing all the trades like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. take my Crunch. I'll take the Crackles. Oh, you want like you can give me your Crackle for this Whopper. Like, <laughs> you got to take advantage of that shit. Um, yeah, but we had a good time. Halloween's always a good time. It's just kind of a little more low key, but I do like the driveway setup and just tailgating while the kids come up and, and take like their little, I guess it's a bag, little mini bags 
you take one bag and uh, that's that. <laughs> we did watch the Penn State game, parts of the Penn State game a little bit, but um, then I had to put the, the little one to bed and that's just been, that's been it's just such a fucking struggle lately. So that's life. That's life. That's life. Oh, I ordered a lot of shit on Sunday. A lot of food. Uh, uh, Uber Eats, because Uber Eats had this promotion. Zero dollar. Zero dollar? <laughs> zero dollar. Zero dollar delivery fee. And originally I got an email about McDonald's being zero dollar delivery fee and Baskin Robbins. And so that's what got me hooked. And I was like, I'm just going to go ball out on Sunday. Like, let's just do this. And then uh, I get on Uber Eats and it's like, well, some other interesting shit on here. And that's also a $0 delivery fee. So maybe I don't need to resort to Mickey D's. Maybe I can like span the mind a little bit. And so I ordered from a place called Diesel and Duke. And they had a sriracha peanut butter bacon cheeseburger. <laughs> I'm just let that. I'll let you, I'm going to let you just slowly ease your ass into that one. Soak it in. Woohoo! Little Barry and LeVon. Put your ass in that pudding from the state on MTV. Yeah. Sriracha, peanut butter, bacon. It's almost like they were following me for about a good 10 years of my life when I was just experimenting. <laughs> uh, gastro, gastrology gastrologically and sexually because I like to combine shit. I like to throw some different stuff together that hasn't been seen or tasted before because I think my taste buds are on permanent hiatus and I just think I want to, I'm just willing to try anything. So like, why not? Why settle for the norm? Be unique, be different, be you Calvin Klein, CK one. Yeah. So I, I was like, yeah, this is, this is tailor-made for me. And it was good. I don't know if it was great. It was good. Also, I, the the people that have the balls to charge the what they do for burgers, and, and I started getting my own head about it because like, this is a good burger, but is it like $11 good? Probably not. I did get a double, which added you know, $3 per patty. Oh, yeah. What's this patty made of? Unicorn? Come on. So. I think it, if you are in the burger business like Diesel and Duke, and I'll probably order from, from there again because I think it's it's still quality and I still appreciate what they're going for. But if you do open a burger business or you serve burgers at your establishment, you got you to gotta understand like the burgers are probably not that expensive to make or get or whatever unless you're doing some seriously exotic meats. Loch Ness Monster. Uh, but... If you're going to do the burger thing, then you have to add things that the consumer knows are probably a little more on the expensive side, you know, like sriracha. Okay. Maybe it's not expensive to buy, but like you don't normally have it's unique. It's whatever. And then it's the peanut butter and it's the novelty and it's the bacon. It's like all those together. Like if it was just lettuce, tomatoes, onions, you'd be like, what the fuck is this $11 burger? Why is this $11? But the the sriracha, it's like they tag on an extra $2 because it, it's it's a, it's a eyebrow popper. It pops them brows, bro. And then the peanut butter on a burger? 
am I high? No, but now I want to be. So it's like they can, they know they can just add dollars because it's like, well, well, I've never seen this before. And because I've never seen this before, I'm willing to pay to try it. It's novelty. And then the, the, I got a side of poutine, which I don't think I've had poutine. Maybe I had it once before. Maybe. But goddamn, I might move to Canada or Wisconsin, one of the two, because holy shit, dude, poutine is legit. It's too legit to quit. Cheese curds, gravy, like it's, you have to eat it with a fork unless you're a goddamn savage, which uh, I, I wouldn't be opposed to doing that one time, just getting really weird with it, you know, possibly erotic. So that was the first of the two delivery orders that I had. So I was like, I was like, this $0 delivery fee is not going to last forever. So we got to take advantage of it ASAP. So I ordered that first, it went, demolished that. And then I decided, uh, you know, I haven't had Buffalo Wild Wings in, I've only had it maybe once before. I was like, might as well give that a shot. So I ordered (laughs) the fried pickles the pickles and the appetizer sampler whatever roundup which was like boneless wings onion rings mozzi sticks nachos possibly one other thing no that's probably it so yeah it was was, it was a big old fat kid sunday for this old fat kid um because why not you know I think on Friday night, after I put the little one to bed, I watched Fright Night. If you've never seen Fright Night, so basically what I did is I went to Collider.com. I I, I Googled best Halloween movies of all time or top Halloween movies or something like that. And I feel like I've done this a bunch of times before, but I keep on getting the same suggestions. It's like, all right, all right. But this list was 75 Halloween movies. Collider.com. And they had... A couple on there that were like from the 80s and ended up like running it through the old Rotten Tomatoes machine. And some of them had some pretty good ratings. So I was like, all right. And, you know, it's 80s horror. So, you know, it's not going to be like that. It's not going to give you that same feeling as like a modern day horror movie that sucks. But still like gory and, and whatnot. Like. I feel like I can handle the 80s horror movies better because they're a little cheesier, they're campier, but like they still have some humor and it's like, all right, it's a little more my speed than say like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre from 2003 when I'm in the theater and I think I'm going to Ralph everywhere, you know? So I ended up picking Fright Night. There are a couple others that I I know it's past Halloween, but maybe I should just give it a shot. The first one is there was Night of the Creeps, which looked actually pretty funny. And then there was like Night of the Demons or something like that, which also looked pretty cheesy. But I went with Fright Night because I've seen Fright Night before while browsing. And I was like, "Mm, I don't know. Is it going to be like too bad? Or is it going to be so bad that I'm not going to be able to enjoy it? Well, you know, it's so bad. There's so bad that it's good. And there's also so bad it's just bad. Like I can't unbearable and so i ended up looking up on rotten tomatoes and it's like really good ratings and so i throw it on 
And uh, I liked it a lot. I think it's like peak 80s horror, you know? It's got like the suburban teen male kid who's like trying to, you know, go all the way with his girlfriend. The girlfriend's like, no. And so he gets really flustered and frustrated. Like, God, be gone from Mars. You won't go all the way. Which totally doesn't fly now or would never be in a movie now. <laughs> and the girl's like, well, I want you to, I don't know, I'm scared. And then they come together, come together and, and, uh, and she's like, finally like, all right, fine. I'm going to get in the bed and you get in the bed with me. And then like something catches his eye. He sees like these two dudes carrying a coffin into the basement next door. He's like, whoa, that's super weird. And so he loses interest in the girl. The girl gets all huffy puffy and leaves. That's kind of the ongoing uh, relationship for that. those two. Turns out, so the, ma- the main male lead character looks a hell of a lot like Freddie Prince Jr. And then the female lead, his girlfriend, looks so... Like, I was like, whoa, do I know this? Like, at first I was like, oh, this is typical, like, 80s, like, no-name actress where this is your only credit. And, but then I, I'm looking a little harder and I'm looking at her mannerisms and I'm looking at the way she speaks and I'm like, this, this is someone I know. And it turns out, Marcy Darcy from Married with Children. <laughs> now, this movie came out in 85 and she plays like a high school senior, high school junior in that movie. and. Married with Children came out, I think it debuted in 87. Maybe she was started in 89, which means she was probably like, if she was really 17 or 18, 85, which I I guess she was not, then she would have been, you know, friggin' like 20 as Mrs. Darcy in <laughs> Married with Children, which it is a testament to her acting ability, the fact that she can play like legitimately realistically play a high school senior and then five years later play a married suburban housewife. I mean, it's pretty impressive. And I understand the Midwest is a whole different ball game, <laughs> but still you got to give her props. And uh, I had a little, you know, as a kid, you're like, you're almost trained to not like Mrs. Marcy Darcy. Cause she's always so uppity and like, you know, whatever. But then I think now going back now that I've been through everything I've been through, it's like, okay, I could see like lady in the street, freaking the sheets. You know what I'm saying? But, uh, yeah, great movie. Fright night. Check it out. So good. They have a guy that is similar to Vincent Price that kind of character, but his name is Peter Vincent. He plays like the host of a show called Fright Night. Kind of like late night, almost public asset access type show about, you know, the occult and vampires and all that stuff. So they ran, they wrangle him in to, to help out with this suspected vampire that lives next door. And what I appreciate the most about pre-CGI horror movies is the practical effects by a long shot. I don't know what it is about practical effects that feels so endearing. CGI, like CGI, even like good CGI, you're like, yep, that's CGI. And it kind of, it's, it's kind of just, I don't think I pre, and I, I'm sure the people that actually put the work into the CGI are like, fuck you, Neil. Like it, I'm sure it's a lot of hard work. 
I'm sure it is. And when it's really good CGI, it looks amazing. But if it's even slightly off, it doesn't feel the same as if you watch like a man made like with hands, blood, blood, sweat, and tears with tools, tangible, physical, hard tools, make a bat. Like, you know, or like a guy transforming into a werewolf so slowly where they have to cut away and then cut back and then they cut away and they cut back. And every time he's a little bit different, a little bit different. I just, I don't know. There's like a, and then probably sound like old man shot in the clouds, but there's a, there's just like a deeper appreciation for that, for that, that craftsmanship of like someone put in a lot of fucking man hours to make that bat that looks so fake, <laughs> but I love it. I don't, I, but you know, if it were a C, like a bad looking CGI bat, I'd be like, eh. it, it just, it turns me off completely. But something about like, you know, the fact that they would have like the actor, think about the fucking actor. The actor had to probably sit in a goddamn chair for an entire day to like look like a vampire or a werewolf. And when you see it, you're like, well, it's obviously a guy and like done up to look like a vampire or werewolf, but you just appreciate it more. Cause you're like that dude probably has sit in his friggin' chair for so long. And he has so many makeup artists and so many people working on this costume and this outfit. And it doesn't, it actually doesn't look that bad. I mean, you know, as a grown ass adult, you're like, yeah, obviously that's, prosthetics and costume and makeup and all that jazz but you just i don't know i just appreciate it more instead of like hey we're gonna throw you in a mocap suit and uh our computer whiz kids are gonna try and turn you into a a, a vamp a vampire a werewolf and it's like eh, okay i you know that's someone that's not that's not a person like at least you know with the practical effects you're like that's a person or that's a thing that was fucking produced through the beauty of just people working together using their hands and whatnot as opposed to like it's a computer program that someone knows very well oh boy <laughs> i think they just alienated an entire segment of my audience that doesn't exist so fright night check it out very cool uh there's uh yeah the uh the mom there was one scene where it's like i think the mom's divorced or something like that and she's talking like the <laughs> this is like one of the opening scenes where the the boyfriend and the girlfriend are arguing and uh you don't know the mom's there and the mom's like i don't want to and no sorry the girlfriend's like i don't want to put out for you what do i have to do to like put out for you i want to put out for you and like and then the mom's like oh hey guys how's it going it's just like did you not hear them screaming about fucking each other? They're in high school. Like, <laughs> I thought this was the 80s. What's that going on? You're a cool, cool mom. So, the friend, too, who they keep calling evil. They never explain why they call him evil, I don't think. But what a character that was just, just missed the mark. Like, it could have been an all-timer, like, memorable unique character that really sticks out to you and is like years to come and just just missed the mark just missed it because like 
although he had some some lines that were like so 80s cheese ball where it's like oh you think you're so cool brewster and just like the way he talks and acts and it's just like if they just tweak the writing and dialogue a little bit and maybe his delivery a little bit it got kind of sad with that character too spoiler alert but uh damn i mean going back to marcy darcy dude there's a there's a scene towards the end, and I'm not gonna give anything away, but where the vampire like she resemble apparently resembles like some woman that he used to bone back in the the day. And he has a painting of that woman, and the woman looks exactly like Marcy Darcy, and so he's now like infatuated with this woman, like has to have her, and I guess he ends up getting to her. First of all, that scene in the nightclub where they're dancing, <laughs> so 80s, but it's so, it like got to me a little bit. I started to tingle a little bit in my special bits. Like, and I was like, well, all of a sudden, this is where I got like interesting because I was like, this is a woman who was, uh, is most likely a virgin, very scared about her first time, timid, you know, not, you know, doesn't have the uh, kind of sexual expertise to really make moves and like, you know, lay it on you. And this vampire has all the moves, all the right moves. And we've already seen him like seduce a woman and, and, you know, typical, like it just the perfect, like eighties male specimen. (laughs) And just like, do they make guys like that anymore? I don't know. So (laughs) they're in this dance club, this nightclub. And, uh, of course, the male lead, the teen who's trying to convince everyone that this fucking dude's a vampire is on the payphone, you know, because there were no cell phones. And so the vampire ends up like seducing the girl and the girl is like laying it on, like the girl is like keeping up with him. And it's like, is it because he's putting a spell on her or is he like unlocking a side of her that she's never known or felt before, but it's been buried deep within her? Maybe, most likely, but like there's one part where she like, bends down, make your knees touch the elbows in the crotchal region, face to crotch. And I was like, whoa, this girl, (laughs) maybe she is ready to take the next step to the next level. But then he ends up like bringing her back to the crib. And uh, I guess, you know, I don't want to give anything away. But when they're in the basement, they're all in the basement. And it's kind of like we're going towards the climax in more ways than one. Hello. She kind of come enters wearing this like white flowy dress. <sighs> yeah, I, I don't, I can't do it justice by describing it to you. I, hopefully it's on YouTube. I don't know. Just look up <laughs> Google <laughs> Marcy Darcy white dress fright night and thank me later. You know, that's what we do. All right. So Jesus Christ, that's life. And that's movies. Let's talk Giants, okay? Whew. Oh, boy. This 2020 season for the New York Giants, I've done, I mean, I've put way too much thinking into this, but it's 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 like the bizarro version of the 2016 season, right? Before each of those seasons, we made a couple, like two or three big free agent splashes, right? 2016, it was Snacks, Jackrabbit, OV. This, before this season, it was Bradbury, Martinez, 
guess you would say like maybe Fleming or who am I, who am I missing out on? I guess they franchise tagged uh, Leonard Williams if you want to count that. So we, we bolster the defense before each season. The defense in 2016 was, I think, ultimately second in scoring at the end of the season. A lot of low-scoring affairs, a lot of close games determined. A lot of the games were determined on the last drive, and a lot of those games were our defense making a stand on the last drive. So we did go 11-5. and But if you look back at the 2016 season and say, if this drive goes differently, if all of those last drives go differently with the defense caving like they did every time in 2015, you would have ended up with probably a 6-10-5-11 record in 2016 as well. But the fact that the defense was able to rise up and make those stands in had to be five games in 2016, they go 11-5. and Now, if we make the stands, the last-minute stands this season on defense, you're looking at we're probably three and four, four and three, five and two. We're probably right where we would be in 2016 at the same time. Because I think in 2016, we started two and three, and then it was off the races after that. We ended up going like, I guess it was, yeah, nine and two down the stretch. So I don't know. Part of me thinks we're not that far off. You know, a lot of people are shitting on Daniel Jones and a lot of people are, are saying, you know, he's not the guy. And it's like comp- comparisons to Eli, which is not fair. First of all, Eli was, when he was 23, he was uh, a senior at Ole Miss. <laughs> people kind of forget that. He was still in college. Uh, you know, Daniel came out two years before Eli came out. 22 last year, 23 this year. I don't think that you can move on from a 23-year-old, especially given some of the statistics and facts I'm going to drop on you. Of course, seeing the graphic that ESPN threw up on the old screen saying that it's the most turnovers since Brian Leaf, Ryan Leaf. It's like, I don't want to see that comparison ever again. Thanks, ESPN. So I don't think we're that far off. And I, you know, last week I said I, I really thought we would keep it close, but it, that the Tampa would blow it wide open in the second half, and that didn't happen. The first half we really controlled the game, had the lead going into the half, which is something that we I don't think we've ever done, maybe outside of the Washington game. And and I thought, okay, well we'll we'll probably shit the bed in the second half. It was it was we gave them a nice fight, but this feels familiar. And we came out in the second half, and the defense wasn't as good. The offense tripped up more than it did in the first half. I mean, this was definitely Jason Garrett's best game that he called of his Giants OC career. Short-lived, but this was the best game that he called. Daniel did not play well, very inaccurate. But you look at Tom Brady, and like he was missing a lot of throws too, and I think it had a lot to do with the wind. And just the elements, because uh, Tom Brady was not as accurate as we're accustomed to him being, although there were still a couple throws where it's like, I can't believe you even pulled the trigger on it, and you still completed it. And uh, and of course, the refs. It, it, I mean, honestly, it feels like Groundhog Day. 
it just feels like we're watching the same game over and over again. Opening drive, we go on defense, we give up points, whether it be a touchdown or a field goal. People are calling field goals a victory, great, but it would be just once to get, like, let's just stop them and not give up points on the first drive. We have three on this first drive, but then they then they clamp down, and then they give up points towards the end of the first half. Of course, it was only a field goal, but still, it's like, guys, let's not let them move the ball with less than two minutes in the half. Let's just make a stop so that we can prevent what happened towards the end of the game, which, you know, we let them go down and score towards the end of the game. But I, I put I put most of the onus on the offense and most of it on Daniel Jones for this game. You know, two just unbelievably bad interceptions thrown where it's like no chance of being completed, nowhere near the receiver, and one ultimately killed the drive, one didn't even let the drive begin. And I think in both instances, they pro- I think he had – the opportunity to throw it away, the opportunity to take a sack. And in one, I think in one instance, he had the opportunity to, to for a possible touchdown if you see Slayton on the left getting behind his, uh, his defender because the defender stopped short on a double move and there was no, no safety over the top. So it is what it is. I was projecting a loss, but I did, I thought it would, and I wasn't alone, that it would be so giants to have this one huge upset win like they always do in in some of these shitty seasons, whether it be the 98 Giants over the undefeated Broncos, the 2017 Giants over the like the playoff-bound Chiefs. Like It just felt like if there were a trap game for the Bucks, this would be it. And sure enough, I mean, if you don't have these fucking referees calling these horseshit penalties no matter what Daniel Jones did turning over the ball Giants win this game Giants win this game I have no doubt in my mind so with that we'll go we'll dial we'll delve I'm delve into some of the big plays on some of the key drives I will lead off with this the Giants are now five and 15 at home since 2018 it's the worst record in the NFL <sighs> We're also O for the century in these fucking white uniforms, these color rush white uniforms, throwbacks from the 80s. Could we not, like, why not just throw the the home throwbacks? Why are we not, why? What is it? Is it, it has to be some kind of weird stipulation. Like the rights to those uniforms ran out in 19, you know, in 2000. <laughs> is, that, is that what happened? Like, why can't we wear the home blues, retro home Throwback 1990 home blues. Why are we wearing the aways at home? I don't, I don't get it. So first drive, of course, 11 plays. Jesus, get off the field. But uh, we we only give up three, which is, uh, I guess, a win, which is nice. But the Bucks took off uh, more than five minutes off the clock. Giants respond with an eight-play, 27-yard drive, um, which was absolutely murdered in cold blood on the second and one in which Wayne Gallman goes up the middle for 12 yards. They call a offensive holding on Zeitler in which he pulls and kicks out. I think it was JPP zero hold on the play. I mean, not even like the, okay, he's holding, but we'll let it slide hold. Like, no, he doesn't, he's not holding anything. He it was a legit block. And so that uh, puts us back. And then we, we get into a third and 11 situation. 
And we have a, a neat little trick play that looked like it was going to be disastrous where Jones kind of throws it, laterals back to Golden Tate, who takes his sweet-ass time getting rid of the ball and took a shot at the end and throws it to Wayne Gallman for the for the first down. That's a trick play that, you know, because most of the trick plays that we've run have not worked out. <laughs> they have not worked to our advantage at all. It's like an end-around fumble. Uh, you know, fake field goal for a touchdown called back because there's a fucking thing. So it just seems like we've we've missed on the trick play. So it's nice to see one that was kind of successful because most of them have not been. And we get into another third and 10 situation and then uh, Jones misses on a deep pass to Slayton, which he missed on a bunch of deep passes this game, which is unfortunate. But uh, again, look at Brady. I don't think Brady hit on many deep passes at all either so maybe can blame the wind maybe can blame it not being on the same page chemistry whatever i know on one pass slayton either looked up i think he looked up too early and didn't run same with shepherd he looked up too early instead of just running to a point and then looking up maybe they didn't look up early enough to see where the ball was going and adjust the route but it just they they were not connecting and you can put some of those on the receivers. You can put some of those on Jones. But it's just like if just one of those goddamn deep balls connects, we win the game. Uh, Dixon gives us a great punt uh, that pins the the Tampa Bay Bucks at the ten. Brady throws uh, on second down. Brady throws to Rojo, who uh, goes down to his knees. Seems to be a big thing with Rojo. He just loves going down to his knees to catch balls. And then Blake Martinez comes in, knocks the ball out. Awesome. We get the ball. Um, we have a, a third and 10, but we do get a neutral zone infraction. So we move it up five yards to the Tampa seven. And uh, Jones throws a, a just masterpiece of a pass to Deion Lewis on like a wheel route on uh, Devin White. Is that his name? Who's like one of the best linebackers in the game, if not the best uh, runner up to Blake Martinez. And Deion Lewis with a great catch because, I mean, he had a guy in his face and somehow was able to put out his hands and, and reel it in. We forced Tampa to punt, and we go on a 12-play, 55-yard drive and have to punt. I mean, come on. These are the things that are killing us. We have third and four at our own 23. We got the defensive offside, so that gives us a first down. Great, uh, I guess, great. Um, oh boy. Great move by Jones to, to draw him offside. Then we have a third and seven to Tampa 30 and Jones gets sacked for 11 yards. So we're in field goal range. It's a 47 yarder. It's in the wind. Who knows if Gano makes it, but this pushes us back 11 yards. And at that point you're looking at 41 plus 17, 58 yarder. So we punt instead of attempting a 58-yarder. I think if you're indoors, in the dome, in Nolens, you know, maybe you would, I think you do attempt it and Gano probably hits it, but uh, just in, in MetLife, I think that's a sure, a sure miss, especially with the wind going on there. So we had to punt it. Um, Tampa then punts thanks to a Leonard Williams sack. Leonard Williams potentially earning that big contract in the offseason. 
And then the next drive is a, another Giants touchdown. We have second and 10 at the Tampa 14. Jones uh, has, a, and the Joe Judge broke this down, the Joe Judge report. And you could see, like, he was avoiding certain, talking about certain things in this report. It was pretty obvious. And Sean O'Hara, who's the host on this one, also was kind of steering him and directing him with a lot of what he was talking about. Because you watch it and you're like, holy shit. So in this instance, it's play action to the right. I believe, uh, oh, so, okay. So Ingram goes in motion right and comes back left to see what kind of coverage we got. Is it man? Is it zone? Turns out it is, I guess it is a zone. I believe it's a play action and Jones comes left. And according to Judge, his read is flat to to the corner. So it's Engram to Tate because Engram uh, was in the flat and Tate was going to the corner. And so he was reading that. And because the corner dropped on Tate or someone didn't attack the flat, Jones quickly decided, and this was another theme of the night, was that Jones was, at least in the first half, getting rid of the ball quickly. And a lot of that was play design. And a lot of that must have been coaching, just being like, we needed you to get rid of the ball earlier, you know, and stop, you know, waiting for things to happen or stop trying to make plays and just go with your first or second read. If it's open, hit it. Don't even uh, hesitate, which didn't really carry over to second half. But so he hits Engram. Engram manages to not run directly out of bounds. Instead, he cuts up field. So he catches the ball and immediately gets north, which is great. And it does that dive, that Superman dive for the uh, end zone, which it looked like he almost got in and he did not step out. But Judge was critical of him for doing that because it's like you you could very easily fumble there out of the end zone or it becomes a touchback and we just gave up points, which I didn't even think about. He's like, we only want to do that on fourth down and on two-point conversions. And I was like, (laughs) how ironic you say that. The two-point conversion... The e- one of the easiest plays, right? But on that play, with Tate running the corner, you can see Tate put up his hand, and he is open, and it's a touchdown. Now, granted, we did score the touchdown anyway. We had a, a Wayne Gallman run behind Andrew Thomas and Shane Lemieux. Holy smokes, Shane Lemieux, welcome to the starting lineup. And we'll get into some like PFF grades, pro football focus grades, which I, I cannot... I don't understand the grades that they gave him. It just doesn't make sense. But as far as the eye test goes, I didn't watch the All-22 or anything anything like that. I'm sure more will come out over the week as the week progresses. But he looked really good from where I was sitting, you know, especially on the touchdown run where he pancaked the guy. Like, he just looks like he's he fits in. He fits in very nicely next to Nick Gates. So you have Nick Gates, alpha male, who's been described as nasty and then you have right next to him you have Shane Lemieux who's described as nasty so you got two nasty boys right next to each other which I dig and I think they should probably dress up like the nasty boys and and do like a music video so we get the touchdowns great we're now up 14-3 and uh now everyone's awake and paying attention which by the way this was the highest rated Monday night football game since 2015 something like that very interesting. I think it, a lot of that's because of Tom Brady. 
But uh, I think most of it's because New York metro, New York market area Giants would love to see an upset, especially over Tom Brady, and we kept it close and we were up, you know, leading. It was very very surprising. I mean, the Bucks were favored by fucking double digits. So Tampa's next drive. Now this is what I'm talking about. It's it's we're under two minutes in the half. Minute 46 on the clock. Tampa gets it. They're 25. They go on an eight play 53 yard drive for a field goal. And they and they basically take up the the remaining uh, minute forty six just about first and ten at the Tampa forty two. Brady hits Tyler Johnson for fifteen yards on James Bradbury. Bradbury did not have a terrible game by any means. If you're if you're if you're looking at it uh, compared relative to the average or the median, is probably could be considered good. But as far as his performances this year, this is probably his worst performance, no? Seems like he gave up, he did give up more receptions, um, higher passer rating. He still had a pass or two defended, but it still felt like he was giving up some big pass plays. Third and two from the Giants, 23. Brady passed short right to Mike Evans for 22. Or no, so... For the, for one yard. So this is a huge play by Logan Ryan, third and two, and he stops uh, Evans short of the goal line, and it forces Tampa to kick the field goal. So we're fourteen six at the half. We're usually we're very rarely up at the half, and to only hold the Tampa Bay Buccaneers led by Tom Brady, the greatest of all time, to two field goals feels good. Same time, damn it, guys, can we just finish out the first half and go in fourteen three? So Giants get the second receive the second half second half kickoff. Deion Lewis is back returning and he he brings it back 44 yards. Joe Judge also covered this in Joe Judge report. And looking at it, I mean, he was not critical of Deion Lewis. Nor should he be too much to a certain extent. The way that it was blocked was was really nice. The way people were able to adapt on the fly was awesome. It created a crease. And there's a moment. And I can see why Dion Lewis might have done this, where he has a choice. There's a fork in the road. And he took the road less traveled, and it did not pay off. Still got a big chunk of yardage, big gain, that honestly, if our offense was capable or consistent enough, would have turned into points, but we didn't. Or did we? No, we didn't. But if you're looking at it from the, uh, I guess, the, the one end zone, Tampa's end zone, with uh, Dion coming at you, there's a there's a blocker. So there's a, a defender, Tampa defender, who's getting kind of blocked, but he's about to get doubled. And then you have the kicker, and the kicker is not in a great position. And I'd like to think that Dion Lewis could beat the kicker. I mean, this kicker is no Adam Vinatieri. So Dion Lewis can go right or left. He chooses left, back into where most of the Tampa defenders are. And he still, you know, is able to get pick up some extra yardage. But it's like if he goes right there, touchdown. And if we go up 21 to 6, I think that takes the wind out of Tampa's sails. I think Tom tends to force the ball. And we're in a much better position to win. And I think the momentum carries and we're able, and you don't feel like Daniel. Maybe the, the the way we call plays, the way we approach the game changes. We're not forcing the ball. We're not trying to do anything offensively that's outside, uh, you know, our comfort zone. And instead, okay, we get the ball at our own uh, 40, 
something yard line, 44 yard line, something like that. I don't know. Second and eight at the Giants, 46. Jones passes short right, intended for Sterling Shepard, and it's intercepted by, uh, I guess his name is Carlton Davis at the Tampa 39. And this was just a bad throw that had no right to be thrown. It was mostly Jones trying to make a play, which is normally how these interceptions happen. Uh, when he should just take the sack or throw it away or try to run or just, you know, whatever, anything but that. And so he, he pumps new life back into Tampa. So there's an instance of if, you know, I want to talk about sliding doors, Gwyneth Paltrow, what? Yeah, never saw it, but I do know it exists. If Dion Lois goes right there and takes it to the house, we're looking at 21-6. They get the ball. And they're deep in their own territory because you got to believe that we'll, they're going to be at their 25 or 30. And now they're, they're not. They're at their 42 and a huge momentum shift. And what does Tampa do with it? They go 10 plays, 34 yards, and they get a field goal. Big play here. Fourth and two at the Giants, 39. Brady passes short right to Mickens, who was just like Mr. Clutch, seemed like for eight yards to pick up the first down on Jabril Peppers. And then, uh, so that's how they, they were able to extend the drive there to get the field goal. You got to think, if they don't get the fourth down conversion, where are we then? You know? Instead, it's 14-9. <laughs> Giants go three and out, not great. Uh, another deep pass to Shepard that is missed. I think on this one is down the left sideline, heading left to right. And I believe the uh, Brian Greasy on the broadcast, was, or maybe it was Louis Riddick, was saying that Shepard just looked up too quick. If he just runs five more yards and then looks up, he's able to connect. As it, as it is now, he has to dive and, and is just out of his reach. How many times have we seen that deep pass? I mean, it, it's reminiscent of that deep pass against the Vikings last year where he's wide open. If he catches it, it's a touchdown, and we miss it. These opportunities, man, they don't come often, and when we, they happen, it's like the good teams convert, the bad teams don't. I just don't think we're that bad a team. These fucking Jets fans that are chirping us about how we're worse than him, worse than them. Okay, yeah. From a record standpoint, historically over the past four or five years, we do have a worse record than the Jets. But I will say this. We have played so many closer games than they have. So many closer games. What, what Jets game has been close this year? I guess it may be the Bills game. Every single fucking Giants game this season has been close. They were saying today, I think Rich Eisen was saying it, the last three to, or four games have been decided by a total of six goddamn points. We won by one. We lost by you know one. Lost by three. Lost by two. I mean, you know, again, 2016, we win these games either because the offense comes up big in the last drive or a defense comes up big on the last drive. What are people saying if we've won, if we won against the Cowboys, Eagles, and the Bucks? Holy smokes, dude. We're not one and seven. No, we're four and four. We're four and three. Four and four, four and three. 
And then what were people say, t- saying and talking about, you motherfuckers? So um, <laughs> we missed the, d- the deep shot to Shepard, which sucks. Um, Tampa gets the ball. Third quarter, eight and a half to play. In the third, five plays, 67 yards. And it, it feels like the, this is where Tampa just got new life. It's like... Anytime you see another team, the opposing team, miss on multiple deep shots that would have been kill shots, like literally put the game away, um, it's got to get, it's got to rejuvenate you. And I think that's what happened with Brady because five plays, 67 yards and a touchdown. The big play was uh, first and 10 at the Giants, 17. Brady throws it to Mickens and then we get the DPI and Bradbury. I think he had two DPIs in this game. So yeah, not his best effort. And then, of course, Gronk gets the touchdown and the two-point conversion fails, which is huge. It comes into play later on. So um, Giants, eighth drive of the game. This is six minutes and a third, 10 plays, 56 yards, and a field goal. I cannot stand these double-digit play drives that end in field goals. It, it drives me nuts. I've seen too many of them. And I know that I know the defense, our defense does the same thing where it's double digit drives and a field goal. But I just don't think you win many games like that. And we haven't. Second and six, the Giants 33. Jones passes short to Evan Ingram uh, for 10 yards. Okay. So that's a first down. Instead, we get a penalty on uh, Levine Tololo OPI. At this point, we just have to stop running rub routes and pick routes because I don't know if there was some kind of secret anonymous love letter or memo sent to the NFL officiating union saying like, hey, in like the cutout magazine letters, you know, <laughs> like a ransom note, like a fucking ransom note, like Mel Gibson and ransom saying like, hey, keep your eyes on the the Giants running rub routes, even though. Every team we've faced has run it against us and has never been called on them. And it's so egregious. And ours aren't. Like the one against uh, Damian Ratley in, in, in Dallas, definitely not. And then this one, which was so, like, I, I can't even describe it. And that, that pretty much makes the drive stall. Although we do get first and 10 at the Tampa 45, Jones passes deep right to Evan Ingram for 30 yards. This is the same exact route that he ran going the other way down the left side of the field against Philly that he dropped. Now, what the hell was the difference? Other than, I guess in the Philly game, he's he's more concerned about getting blown up because he thinks that the safety's going to come over and knock his block off. And on this one, he was probably thinking, I... I just cannot drop this ball. If I drop this ball, I will never hear the end of it. And he catches it, and it goes for big yardage, and it's like, ugh, could you, why couldn't you do that last week? If you do it last week, it's a W. First and 10 from the Tampa 15. We get uh, Alfred Morris on the right end for uh, a loss, but there is a penalty on Nick Gates for holding. So instead of uh, first and 10, we now got like, you know, second and 20 or whatever, second and I don't know how many yards. And we end up going third and 11 at the Tampa 16. Uh, and Jones passes on a short right to Dion Lewis for one yard. This was, uh, and Jason Garrett had a almost like a nearly flawless game in terms of play calling. 
This was a stupid call. Just a stupid call. It's third and 11, and you throw like a, a flash screen, wide receiver screen to Deion Lewis, and it gets just smothered. What What is the reasoning there? Attack down the field, dude. If you it, and like if you are gonna run something like that, and I remember they I think they ran it against the Jets last year, where it was like a flash screen to, to Golden Tate and he took it to the house. That's Golden Tate, not Dion Lewis. And they've run that play to Tate again since then, maybe even this year, and it's, it did not do well either. So it's like I just would have loved to see. And I think they ran so the the whip route was huge for Shepard last week against the Eagles, or the previous week against the Eagles, and I saw it happen in this game. But I think Jones was under attack and I just didn't see him. But I would have loved to see that route again, or just anything else, <laughs> literally anything else. Um. So we end up getting the field goal there. I think it's uh missed it 15 15 14 Tampa. Tampa then goes three and out. Uh Carter Coughlin, who had four what four snaps or six snaps total, gets the sack for eight for eight yards. Cam Brown was also in the vicinity, so it's good to see the youngins getting uh you know, popping them cherries. Giants get the ball. We have third and four at the Giants 49. And Jones passes short to Golden Tate for 12 yards. We get a penalty on Carlton Davis for illegal use of hands, which declines. It's a huge third down conversion. Second and five, Tampa 34. Jones passes short right to Tate and it's intercepted. This is the one where, you know, it's, you could, you could see it as like a, what, a, seeing a, car wreck in slow motion you could just see it coming from a fucking mile away where it's like all repeatedly everyone every giants fan on sitting at home watching the game was just like throw it away take the sack throw it away take it a sack throw it away take it a sack throw it away take it a sack and nope he's like uh, tries to force it to golden tate when he had i believe this is the one where he had slayton just wide open down the left sideline for a touchdown so and that was that was a, a drive killer. Because <laughs> that's, I mean, to, to get the sack on Brady is a huge momentum shift. You get the offense in a positive frame of mind, and then, like, you know, that happens. Second and five, Tampa, 34. Those, that's points. You got to think that we're going to at least get three out of that, and instead we get zero. God damn it, Daniel. So Tampa gets the ball. It's now 12 minutes left in the fourth in the game. Six play drive, 66 yards. And again, you know, the offense comes alive when they see the defense make a huge stop when they prevent points like that, especially with Tom Brady at the helm. First and 20 at the Tampa 38. First and 20. And Brady throws to Tyler Johnson for 20 yards and a first down. Mm. First and 10 at the Giants, 42. Brady passes deep right to Cameron Brate. Pushed out of bounds at the New York Giants, 17 for 25 yards. This is when they called Isaac Yitam for lowering his head to initiate contact when it was 1 million percent Cameron Brate lowering his head and who initiated the contact. 
So again, another bullshit penalty call from the refs. Thank you very much. Yeah, so the Bucks go on to score a touchdown. So it's now 22-14. Giants go three and out. Can't have that happen. Third and seven off the Giants, 28. Jones passes short right to Sterling Shepard for one yard. What are we doing? Next drive uh, is now a little under seven minutes left in the game. Third and seventh, the Giants, 44. Another James Bradbury defensive pass interference, 15 yards. Holy shit. And then third and one at the Giants, 20. So it's 22-15. No, 22. Yeah, 22-15. Right? Oh, my God. Keep losing track of the score. Third and one at the Giants, 20. And this is where Fournette uh, gets no gain. Thanks to uh, Jabril Peppers and Dalvin Tomlinson. So Bruce Arians has to make a decision. Do I go for it? And if I get it, the game is pretty much over. Or do I kick the field goal and play it safe? And and so he decided to to kick the field goal. So it's now 25-16. No, 25-15. No, dude, what are you talking about? My head hurts. <laughs> 25, 17. Jesus, Neil. Math much? So, and this is the this is the drive that in my mind was redeeming for Daniel Jones. It was not a pretty drive. And was a lot of good fortune, a lot of luck, but uh, he could have done what he's done in past games and and fumbled the ball away in a sack or you know pick take your pick. There's a bunch of them. Throw an inter- throw an interception in the red zone uh, against the Rams. Uh, throw the wrong guy against the Bears. Um, you know that, I mean we've seen plenty of times where the ball is in his hands with the game to win and he's lost it and he hasn't come through in the clutch this time is, you know, it was a little iffy there, but fourth and five from the Giants, 35. He passes to Slayton for 12 yards, huge first down. That was the one, I think. Was that the one? Yeah, that was the one where it's like he's standing in there, he's standing in there, and he looks like he's just trying everything he can to stay in the pocket. He's about to get hit, and he just throws it, and you're thinking to yourself, well, this is an interception or incompletion, and Slayton comes back to the ball, makes the catch before the sticks, and is able to pick up the first. Huge first down. Second and 15 from the Giants, 42. Jones scrambles right uh, and picks up 15 yards for a first down. So, again, making plays with his legs. And we'll go, we'll delve into, like, why he only had three carries on the night. I think that's, like, criminal. Um, fourth and 16 from the Tampa 49. You figure this has got to be game over. There's no way he's converting this, but yeah, he does pass deep middle of Sterling Shepard for 22 for 20 yards. First down at the Tampa 29, second and 10 at the Tampa 19. Jones throws. I mean, there's a reason, folks. We call him Mr. Dimes, Senor Dimes. 
because this is a 10 cent piece to Golden Tate in the back of the end zone and a, and a, and a really an incredible catch by Golden Tate. And it makes you wonder why Jones doesn't go to Tate more often. And uh, I didn't even know this at the time. I don't know what was happening. I think I was just so fucking excited in my own head that I didn't even realize at the time that Tate, when the camera guy came up to him, that Tate screamed, throw, throw me the damn ball. No clue. But uh, I would probably be in agreement with him looking at his final stat line, which we'll get to in a second. Like, yeah, let's probably try and get him the ball more often. The two-point conversion attempt from hell. Deion Lewis goes in motion, and he's about as oh, And I knew as soon as he went in motion, I knew Jones was going to him. And when I didn't see Jones throw the ball to him, and I yelled, throw the ball, I knew bad things were going to happen. If Jones just throws the ball when he's supposed to throw the ball, we get the two points, we go into overtime, and we probably, I got a good feeling, we win. But instead, he hesitates, and he who hesitates masturbates. And in that case, Daniel Jones was uh, playing whack-a-mole because uh, he throws it too late. I think it was Anton Winfield Jr., possibly, breaks up the pass, quote-unquote, but it was so goddamn obvious that it was a pass interference. I mean, and the refs throw the flag, so they obviously saw the same thing as everyone else did, excluding Bucks fans. They and then they get together and have the conference. And they talk and they talk and talk. And the more they talk, they're like, they're gonna pick up this flag. They're gonna let this play go penalty less. And sure enough, they pick it up and they say that and the, the game is over at that point. I've watched the replay a million times. I don't know how you look at that replay and say to yourself, Nope, he didn't get there too early. I mean, we have the benefit of slow motion. And if you look at the slow motion, it's not simultaneous. He hits him and the ball hits his hand at the same time, his arm at the same time. It's just not. He he makes contact with, with Deion Lewis, who's trying to come back for the ball, and then the ball hits Winfield's arm. It's that simple. So... I mean, yeah, I'm sure the official apology letter from the NFL will be great. We can frame that and put it on the wall when we miss the playoffs for another friggin' time. But would appreciate the two points into overtime much more. So, yeah, it's a drive-by-drive summary brought to you by Toyota. <laughs> uh, let's take a look at the team stats and individual player stats, analyze those real quick. Um, it was pretty even across the board if you look at the team stats. We did excel in the rushing department, 101 rushing yards. And for the first time, it wasn't because of Daniel Jones. We also held the Bucks to 81 rushing yards, which uh, is is great because that Rojo-Leonard-Fournette combination ain't too shabby, and that offensive line is pretty decent. Uh, Buccaneers have allowed 100 rushing yards for the first time in their last 14 games. Their 13-game streak was the longest in team history. So the fact that we were going up against, you know, I, and what I said last week, this is a top 10, top five defense, maybe even a top one defense in a lot of categories, top three at least. And so I didn't think that we were going to be able to run the ball. I didn't think we were going to be able to move the ball, pass the ball, anything. And the fact that we got 101 rushing yards and Wayne Gallman was a big part of that is really good to see, especially with Will Hernandez out due to COVID and having Shane Lemieux inserted into the lineup. 
but yet he still had a shitty PFF grade. What is Pro Football Focus looking at? Uh, we allowed, we did allow three sacks, but we did get two. The Giants' defense is uh, two or more sacks in each of their first eight games of season, the first time since 2011. Does that ring a bell? 2011 we went nine and seven, went to the Super Bowl, and we beat Tom Brady. So, repeat. Um, pass block grades, and this is what I was talking about, pro football focus. The pass block grades and pressures allowed by the Giants rookies last night. Matt Parrott played, uh, I think, 34, 32% of snaps. There were 14 snaps in which he had to do pass blocking, and he allowed zero pressures. Good on you, Matt Parrott. Uh, Andrew Thomas, the much maligned Andrew Thomas, 49 pass blocking snaps, only four pressures, so it's 65.7 grade. And then I just, I don't understand this at all. But so Lemieux has the same amount of pass blocking snaps, 49. He allowed one more pressure than Andrew Thomas, but had a 12.1 pass block grade. What the fuck is that about? His overall grade was 34.3. So obviously he's doing better in the run game, but I don't, what? I mean, I've gone cross-eyed. The seven penalties were killer. And I can tell you right off the bat, the holding call on Zeitler that that prevented us from going further into the red zone, that was bullshit. You had the Isaac Yidem personal foul, 15 yards, that was bullshit. You have the non-pass interference call on the two-point conversion. I mean, I can name... Of those seven penalties, I'd say probably half were just not called correctly. Daniel Jones, 25-41, 256, two touchdowns, two interceptions. Great throw to Deion Lewis. Great throw to Golden Tate. Not so great interceptions. Uh, Justin Pennick, a talking giant, said that uh, Daniel Jones' average time before the release in the first half is 2.14 seconds. Talk about efficiency being decisive and Jason Garrett having his best half yet as a play caller. Uh, ditto true that true that next gen stats said this is the only the second game of Jones career with a pressure rate below 25% tonight it was 22.2% but yet Shane Lemieux has a 12.1 pass block grade what the hell is going on here pro football focus Jones has been the most pressured quarterback since entering the NFL in 2019 with a 39.3% pressure rate in his career and that was entering the game uh, Justin Pennick also said how the Giants were moving the ball in the first half. Genuinely put a smile on my face, utilizing pre-snap motion. Boom. Play action. Boom. High tempo. No, auto, no huddle. Boom. And quick release in the face of the blitz. All great stuff. Jason Garrett finally put Jones in position to succeed, but Jones failed. Yeah. Not his most accurate game. And then the two bad decisions. Art Stapleton said that against the same Tampa Bay defense and just a comparison of the numbers and the performance, not of the players. <laughs> Got a nice little qualifier there. Aaron Rodgers in week six against Tampa. 16 of 35, 160, two interceptions, zero touchdowns. Daniel Jones in week eight against the Bucks, 25 of 41, 256, two touchdowns, two interceptions. So for everyone calling for Daniel Jones' head, are you going to call for Aaron Rodgers' head? Because you should. Golden, Golden Tate, one of one for 18 yards uh, and what was many have called the longest developing trick play of all time. Wayne Gallman, 12 carries, 44 yards and a touchdown. 
Wayne Gallman's touchdown in the second quarter gave the Giants an 11-point lead, which was their largest lead in their five non-divisional games this season. And we still couldn't hold on to it. I'm wondering what kind of a fucking lead we need to win in games. Because 11 points ain't going to cut it. It's got to be like 21 or more. And even then, it's going gonna, gonna to be a nail-biter. So this is what I was talking about. Daniel Jones, only three carries for 20 yards. I feel like there were a couple times where there was an RPO and he just, he, he handed it off and it's like, Daniel, you had so much territory and lawn in front of you, so much green. Give it, give it a go, my brother. Daniel Jones has surpassed Fran Tarkenden for the most rushing yards by a Giants quarterback in a single season in the Super Bowl area. Area. Era. Hello. Of course, Evan Engram with the uh, obligatory one carry for nine yards. <laughs> Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Stoneland Shepard had a day, 10 targets, 8 catches, 74 yards, no touchdowns though. Evan Engram had a bit of a bounce back game, 10 targets but only 5 catches, 61 yards. He has become the 6th tight end in Giants history with 2,000 or more career receiving yards. And I mean, when he was drafted, I put out a, a blog post about the greatest tight ends in Giants history and I felt like he could be the number one tight end in Giants history. And maybe that can still happen. Maybe it's like, you know, it takes you four or five years to get your act together. Darius Slayton, nine targets, only five catches, 56 yards. We still got to work on that catch rate. I think a lot of the times, you know, numbers can be deceiving. I think you can attribute sometimes this catch rate to the fact that Jones dislikes him a lot and will d default to him when shit gets hot and hairy. Ew. And then Golden Tate has become the storyline this week, unfortunately. Three targets. Three. Two catches, 31 yards, and a touchdown. I mean, I've, I said it before. Is it is it like, would you rather him have Shep's numbers? Like eight catches, but no touchdowns? Or would you rather have two catches, one touchdown? You got to put points on the board. I can kind of see where Golden Tate is coming from. We talked about the Joe Jordan report, that play to Engram in the flat where he gets down to like the one or two yard line where Tate had his hand up and was open. There was another play where I saw him open. So he's open. Not very often, but he's open. So I'd say maybe design more plays for him. Maybe he's falling out of favor. I don't know. New York Post said he was not, Golden Tate was not targeted by Daniel Jones during the first three quarters on Monday. I, I find that hard to believe because he was on the interception, and that was in the third quarter, unless I'm, I guess maybe it was the fourth quarter. And the, the one-trick play is not a target, so yeah, maybe they're right. After Tate made the first catch early in the fourth, Tate looked at the Giants' sideline and said, throw me the damn ball. Ooh, that's probably not going to go over well, Joe Judge. And later he made the the uh, that circus touchdown catch, and yelled, "Throw me the ball into the camera." He played just fifty four percent of the offensive snaps against the Bucks. Not great, but uh, you know, uh, given how successful they were, relatively speaking, you know, against the average, not successful, but in terms of how how we define success on the Giants' offensive side of the ball, maybe that's 
what percentage he should be playing because when you have Caden Smith and Levine Toilolo and Evan Ingram in there and with Slayton and Shepard back, that's a nice little mix. I don't know how Tate fits into that. And because of his actions, you know, uh, demanding the ball and such in the public eye like that, um, he was told to stay home from practice Wednesday. There's disciplinary action from uh, Joe Judge, jury and executioner. So, you know, I agree with him. He needs more targets. And uh, they need to get a little more creative with how they how they're calling plays designed for him. It's it's apparent to me that they have play designs specifically for Evan Ingram to get him the ball in space and get running. It seems that they have the correct plays in place for for Darius Slayton. I really like you know like I mentioned Shepard on the whip route and on the double move and all that. Where is that for Golden Tate? I'm just not seeing it yet and when he does get open jones is not seeing him so he just doesn't have that kind of connection with him that he does with uh with shepherd and slayton and with angram it's just like you know he's probably been being told ad nauseum throughout the week we got to get the ball to angram we got to get the ball to angram so he tends to force it to him oh yeah Matt Parrott played 32% of offensive snaps. Like I mentioned, Eli Penny, only three snaps. Kind of weird, you know? There was, a, I know I'm, I sound like a broken record, but like all these, let's talk about hog mollies and ground and pound, all this, and your fullback's only playing three snaps. And I get it. The Bucks have a great run defense. But you look at what happened when we were deep in our own territory, that one, that one play action to Eli Penny where he picks up 11 yards. There's you have that option. So even though if you're not going to run, you still have the play action to him that's going to pick up some significant yardage. So three snaps is way too is just not enough in my in my HO. On defense, Jabril Peppers uh, led the team in tackles with uh, nine solos, one assist. Blake Martinez had six solos, three assists, uh, and the one tackle for loss. Uh, Nick Filato tweeted that through eight games, Blake Martinez ranks number one in stops with 38, according to Pro Football Focus. Levante David of the Bucks ranks number two with 33. So, I mean, that's been a win all around. In Bradbury, even though he had a kind of a step back this week, I think he and Martinez have been uh, crucial signings. And I just hope, you know, I hate. Hate to repeat myself, but I just hope they don't. It doesn't turn out like it did after 2016 with Snacks, Jackrabbit, and Ovi, where it's like all three of those dudes had really good years in 2016, and then just fell off the fucking planet in 2017 and were traded in 2018. So hopefully that doesn't happen here. I get a, I get a different sense from like I, I I liked Snacks, but you could tell like with Ovi and 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 Jenkins like. And maybe this is what Gettleman was talking about. Clubhouse guys and, you know, you you see Martinez talk in post-game pressers and he just, it just, it feels different. And I haven't seen Bradbury talk, but maybe he's the silent type, you know. Isaac Yidem made the start at, at CB2. 
second corner position. And what I what I found happening a lot, and this happened in the Philly game as well, is I think early on when uh, in the early part of drives, the Giants opt to play soft zones because they don't want to get beat deep. And I think Joe Judge even mentioned that in the Joe Judge, Judge report. And then once it gets to crunch time in their own territory, they tend to man up because they have the boundaries to play with as the extra defender. So Isaac Yidem, I was like not crazy about him, just like willy-nilly giving up 10, 12, 15 yards of catch in the first half. But it seemed like when he went to man, he was able to uh, to provide some pretty close coverage, tight coverage. So. I don't know, maybe he is the answer. Oh, and that penalty on fucking Logan Ryan. Which I, I guess they did, did they not end up calling that? I think they didn't end up calling it. But at the same time, receiver did not pick up the first down. And the fact that we didn't challenge it was stupid because they just automatically awarded the Bucks the first down there. Um, Leonard Williams won solo three assists. And a sack. And then this is this kind of blew my mind. Kyler Fackrell, who I can never pronounce his fucking last name. Kyler Fackrell played 91% of defensive snaps and had one assist. What I I, I don't I can't really grasp what's happening. How does that happen? Is like, are the Bucks scheming to Fackrell and and like <laughs> incapacitating him? Like, what? How does that even happen to have one assisted tackle ninety one percent of snaps, dude? And then I thought this was interesting too. Jabal Sheard. So we trade Marcus Golden. We don't have O'Shane Zimenez. I guess the belief is that Cam Brown and Carter Coughlin are not ready for every day, every more snaps. Like, Cam Brown had six and Carter Coughlin had four snaps. So they bring in Jabal Sheard off the streets and he plays 49% of snaps, almost half the snaps on defense. And I think maybe he had a tackle. Very weird. Um, and also the other guy we brought up, Harris. He got a bunch of snaps. And I don't think he had any tackles either. Very interesting. Corey Ballantyne had zero snaps on defense, and that's kind of what happens, man. You get you get opportunities, you got to take advantage of them, and then it, it's unfortunate because there's so many young guys on this team, average age 25, and the the expectations are so high for a lot of this young talent to develop quickly. And if you if you aren't hitting a certain pace, you're just you get written out of the script. Sucks. Brady was 28 of 40, 279, two touches. Starting quarterbacks age 23 or younger are now 1 in 13 versus Tom Brady since 2017, including the playoffs. So that's a stat I would have loved to have before this game. Not that it would have changed my prediction. Um, Tom Brady is now 33 and 42 in games when trailing at halftime. It's the third highest win percentage in such games in the Super Bowl era. Minimum of 50 starts. So uh, I guess the way the, the outcome, the way things turned out makes sense. And then Tom Brady has never lost to a one-win team in week eight or, or later in this career. So all the, all the chips were against us. 
Leonard Fournette had 15 carries for 52 yards. Ronald Jones, seven carries for 23 yards. So we held the running game in check. And, you know, Brady didn't look terribly confident. There were like two drives where it was like, whoa, he's just in fucking, he's in, he's in uh, beast mode. And we'll get to beast mode talking a little bit. Spoiler, teaser. Mike Evans, five catches, 55 yards on a touchdown on seven targets. He had more receiving yards versus the Giants than he had in his last two games combined. <laughs> and then Gronk, four catches, 41 yards on four targets and a touchdown. Gronk has one or more receiving touchdowns in three straight games for the first time since uh, week six through eight of 2016. Speaking of 2016, Jaden Mickens, eight targets, five catches. Yeah, eight different receivers caught a ball for for Brady, while uh, nine different receivers caught a ball for Daniel Jones, which in Madden, you get like... Bonus points. I don't know if they still do it in Madden because I haven't played Madden since I don't know when. But I know back in the day, you used to get like bonus points towards your profile if you hit like more than seven different receivers in a game. Uh, so defensively for the Bucks, Jason Pierre-Paul, who said he was going to come in and demolish the Giants, didn't get the sense from watching the game. I mean, he was mostly contained in the first half, I feel like. In the second half, he started to make some big plays, but I don't feel like he dominated us or crushed us. Yes, there was that um, the pass to Shepard. Is it Shepard or Gallman? Yeah, it was Shepard along the left sideline where if Jason Pierre-Paul doesn't trip him up, Shepard's probably gone for six, so that's a huge game-saving play. Saving a touchdown there. And then uh, two tackles for loss and a sack. So, yeah. In the second half, he started to come to life. But I don't think he, like... He made his presence known, but I don't know that he can, like, completely control the game. He also got blown up by Caden Smith on one play. Yeah, he, he wasn't looking. Okay, I'll give you that. Devin White also had five solos, two assists, and a sack. Devin White has five sacks in his last three games. Two and a half sacks in his previous... 18 career games. So you're getting him involved in the pass rush a little bit more. And an Ndamukong Su also had a sack. So, I mean, considering the defense, I mean, look at these names JPP, Devin White, Ndamukong Su, some big names. And the fact that we were put, able to put up uh, 23 and probably should have had more is a testament to how much we're developing. So even though we are one in seven and we've been one in seven, two of the past three seasons or something like that, and we can continue to lose ball games, we're not losing by more than a touchdown or double digits like we were last year, or the year before. It just feels different. I believe in Joe Judge and I believe in Daniel Jones, as Deion Sanders would say. Buccaneers defense has one or more interceptions in seven consecutive games in a single season for the first time since 2004. The Bucs are set up for a pretty decent run at this damn Lombardi. I think the Saints just don't have it this year. They're skating by. No Michael Thomas. Breeze, not. I mean, Brady's, it just appears to be you know, from an outsider's perspective, to be throwing the ball better than Breeze. 
and the Saints are kind of escaping with wins. So I think the Bucks take the South. All right, news and notes. Jason LaCanfora said if the Giants make a change at GM, which many believe they will, many believe they will, uh, this is the name to watch. What's his name? Casario from the from the Pats. So looks like a young, handsome dude. He actually looks like the vampire from Fright Night, if, uh, if we're being honest. So, um, you know, my thoughts on our, I could take it or leave it if we get rid of a gentleman. I mean, you kind of, I mean, there's, there's a lot of cons, there's a lot of knocks on him, but there's also a lot of great things about him and a lot of great things he's done for the team. I still love Saquon. I still love Daniel Jones. Uh, I love Darius Slayton. You know, it's looking like Nick Gates is going to be eventually going to be a pretty decent center. He brought in Zeitler, who's stabilized the line. Andrew Thomas seems to be progressing. Could turn out to be great. Matthew Parrott could be great. Shane Lemieux looks like he could be great. Will Hernandez, if he gets his act together, could be the other guard. And you're set up for what could be a very nice offensive line for years to come with a weapon or, or three mixed in there that he's responsible for. And then on the defensive side of the ball, he, he hit on Martinez. He hit on Bradbury. The Leonard Williams thing is iffy, but if he continues to play at this rate and we're able to get him for a reasonable rate, I guess you keep him. Um, Jabril Peppers, um, I love him, even though maybe he's not to the level we would like him to be. He's still playing his dick off and giving us, uh, you know, um, a nice spark. So, uh, you know, I, I could go either way. It's a flip of the coin for me. I don't know what this Casario dude, I guess he used to be maybe in Kansas City. Was that where he was originally? Nick Casario? Let's take a look at this dude. Ooh, he's like my age. Holy shit. 44 years old. Um... Personal assistant, personnel assistant in 2001 with the Pats, promoted to area scout in 03, director of pro personnel 2004, 2006, and then he's been the director of player personnel since 2008 for the Pats, six time Super Bowl champion, no big deal. Uh, wide receivers coach in 07, offensive coaching assistant in 2002. So let's take a look here. Mm -mm -mm. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, all right. Casario also continued to assist the coaching staff in the press box during games along with football research director Ernie Adams. Oh, boy. Where's the camcorder? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, the fact that anyone really that's been involved with that Pats dynasty for as long as they have been and has been able to, I mean, like people thought that that team was basically dead and was not going to win any Super Bowls again, you know, after the Giants beat them, I think in 2007, you know, because they had that run. They went in 02, 03, 04, or 05, whatever. And then they go in 07, they lose. And then they did not win another Super Bowl until what, 13, 14? No, sorry, 14, 15. 
and they probably should have lost that one. But then they go on that second run, and the ability to do that, uh, you know, obviously Brady's a, a huge part of it, but the, to juggle the roster like they did, I mean, you got to think the GM's uh, player personnel guys got a lot to do with it. So I don't know. Probably have to do some re- more research, but I think the fact that he is probably familiar with Joe Judge doesn't hurt him either. So I guess I'm, I guess I'm for it. Bobby Skinner from Talking Giants said that Kenny Galladay has surpassed Allen Robinson as my number one free agency target. He will be Daniel Jones' version of Plaxico. Oh, baby. That gets me all boned up, six to midnight. Although Kenny Galladay has had a bit, caught the old injury bug this year. He's, he's missed a couple games. He's on my fantasy team, and he's just, he's just uh, super frustrating. I think it's a hamstring or something. He had to leave the game early this past Sunday. Cost me cost me the game essentially (laughs) and no one cares about your fitness team but uh i wouldn't hate it i wouldn't hate signing him but like seeing what alan robinson has done with the bears those catches he's making oof, and then the fact that he's complimenting darius slayton it's like oh that got me all my ears all perked we uh with the (laughs) And, uh, you know, we basically didn't make any moves at the trade deadline, which is kind of crazy. But at the same time, and given what's happened with Golden Tate, you would have thought, like, and this is where if the game had been on Sunday and not Monday night, and they have the film session on Monday, and they they see and hear about Golden Tate demanding the ball, do they trade him on Tuesday? Instead, you have the game Monday night. It ends late. They probably don't get around a film session until late in the day. And by the time it all comes to fruition, they talk about it. Trade deadline has come and gone. Now, a lot of people are saying, well, even Tate's salary at something like he's owed four something for the rest of the, yeah, a little, a little less than five mil for the rest of the year. People don't want to pay that considering he's only put up 26 catches for 222 yards through first half. Okay, but can you even... Like you could also point to the fact that we haven't really been calling plays for him or using him the right way. I don't know, but I was surprised to see him stick around a little surprised that Zeitler didn't go. I was just, I mean, I I didn't think Ingram was really going to go and I didn't think Jabril Peppers was going to go, but there were a few people that I thought that would get a little more, I don't know. But Joe Judge had said that they weren't reaching out to people. They were taking calls, and apparently none of the deals was sweet enough. So instead, they claimed Dante Pettis off waivers from San Francisco. This guy was, a, I guess, a former second-round pick but hasn't really paid off with the Niners. So maybe change of scenery will do him good. Does about a good. We also signed guard Kenny Wiggins. Started all 16 games for the Chargers in 17, but fell out of favor in Detroit. So... I think that's somewhat related to the fact that Will Hernandez is still on the COVID list, is probably going to miss this game. So in the event that Zeitler or Lemieux go down, then you have Wiggins, I guess, in the wings. Wiggins in the wings? And then safety Adrian Colbert placed on IR. Jesus Christ. We just can't catch a break. I, I was just talking about how, like, oh, we're not plagued by injuries. And then it's like... <laughs> Uh, Will Hernandez goes down with the COVID and then Colbert on IR. And it's like, oh, shit, man. 
I mean, it's a, it's crazy thinking about how our secondary, the amount of bodies we've been throwing around in the secondary. Baker criminal charges Beal opt out. Yitam benched Ryan Lewis IR. <laughs> Madre Harper flags. And then they had another guy, Brandon Williams went to IR. Yeah, it's just been like a fucking carousel turnstile. So that sucks too because I think Colbert was playing well. Instead, now we have, I guess we have the rotation of Logan Ryan, Julian Love, and Jabril Peppers, which is coming together. But I think, you know, the team is not as high on Love as uh, we were in the preseason. So that's news and notes. We'll take a look at the upcoming schedule. And people are going to call me delusional. I don't give a shit. Okay. The way I'm looking at it, this is still, especially after this performance, especially after we could have very easily gotten a win against probably the number two seed in the friggin' NFC. The fact that we put up that kind of fight and we were close to winning when we had, we weren't 100%. And yes, they were missing Chris Godwin. Okay. I get it. But, at the same time, we took it to the Bucks. Could have won if we're not for a mistake here or there. You clean up the mistakes, which they keep talking about, but it's like maybe they will clean it up for in the second half. Maybe this is the wake-up call. Last week was the wake-up call for Evan Ingram. Maybe he's turned the corner, and it's like maybe this is the wake-up call for Daniel Jones. I mean, you watched that post-game pressure with Daniel Jones, and he was just like, it looked like he was about to cry. It was just like, he just kept getting hammered with these questions, like just repeated slams about like, do you think you're ever going to learn your lesson? <laughs> it's like, Daniel's like, uh. so I don't know. Maybe he, maybe he turns the corner now and maybe we do it this week against Washington. So I didn't, I didn't prepare a full on preview for Washington. Cause it's like, I already did it a couple weeks ago. I don't think that much has changed, you know? Um, I know that people are saying that that front seven is going to wreak havoc on us again. They, their secondaries, I mean, they're defensively, they're pretty stacked and we're going to have a tough time throwing the ball. But I like to think that Garrett has a little, this game against the Bucks has given him a little uh, boost, you know, a little juice. And he'll, he'll use that and carry that into this game against Washington. And maybe this is the Golden Tate redemption game. And the Daniel Jones redemption game, you know, we didn't, I don't think, did we have Shepard against Washington last time? I don't think we did. Maybe we did. No, we didn't. So you have Shepard, Tate, Slayton, Engram. I mean, Jesus Christ. Like, that's a pretty good lineup. So, again, it'll be hard fought, low scoring. I think the Washington's favored by three or three and a half. It'll be in Landover, one o'clock game. Uh, I'm probably not going to be able to watch it because it's uh, I'm having a little birthday retreat with the wife. <laughs> uh, so I'll probably just tape it and watch it after. I took off that Monday, which is my actual birthday. So, Lordy, Lordy, look who's turning forty, forty. Uh, but yeah, I think I think we come come away with another tight win. It's going to be tight, so tight, but it's a tight win. I think it's going to be another ugly win, but I just feel like we have, we have, we have the mojo. We've got 
you know, listening to Dribble Peppers, listening to Darius Lee, they're all in sync. They are a boy band comprised of four duds and a superstar. No, they are in sync. They they are calibrated, and it's just a matter of tinkering here and there. Just tweak, 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 and you know, take advantage of the opportunities, eliminate the mistakes. It's it's we're not the Jets, dude. We're not the Jets. The Jets are in shambles. Their coach is just like, he looks like he's just, he had a fucking cattle prod shoved up his ass. The Giants, with Joe Judge at the helm, he's got them acting right. He's disciplining Tate. He's uh, he's not throwing guys under the bus. He's standing behind Daniel Jones. I mean, it's like all the things are lining up. And I think he's got them in a good spot. And like many people are noting, Rich Eisen, Giants wire, they're trending upward. It's not the same old Giants that are, are embarrassing themselves every week. Yes, it still hurts to the core to watch them lose the way they lose. But the fact that they're so close to winning, they're on the precipice of something special, and I think this is where we go on a run. I really do. At Washington, that's a win. Home against Philly, we get the win. I don't care who's coming back for Philly. We get the goddamn win. And then we go into a bye. We go into a bye at three and seven, and then we face the goddamn Bengals. And I understand the Bengals came out and, and upset the Titans. So that's a little bit concerning. But also the Titans are not what they used to be. I know they just traded for Desmond King, possibly. So maybe that gives them uh, the jump that they need. But I think we can take it to the Bengals, and we'll see. But I think that will be another squeaker. And you're looking at four and seven. And we got and then we gotta go to Seattle. And it's a loss. I mean, that's <laughs> a loss. That's that's a loss. Russell Wilson, Jesus Christ. DK Metcalf, oh boy. So yeah, it's a loss. Possible blowout, but it's also like, let's just get it out of our system. We need to have a really bad game, get out of our system, detox a little bit. Might as well be at Seattle. So then we're three and eight. I think we we have two home games, and these are gonna be crucial. Cards. Browns. I don't know. I, the Cardinals took it to the to the Seahawks in Arizona and won. And Kyler Murray is a problem. We know that. And he, now he has not, not just Larry Fitz, but he's got DeAndre Hopkins. And he's got some weapons. And he's got Cliff Kingsbury calling some sneaky good plays. He's got a defense that's coming around. So this is like the Marcus Golden Revenge game, I guess you could say. <laughs> so maybe he comes out and has a million sacks, and then we regret trading him. But if you remember, we were in, when we played, when they came to us last year, it was a matter of like a few plays that just caught us off guard, and we were in the game for most of the game. And I think Patrick Graham is not James Betcher, and that he's going to come to play. He keeps designing. I mean, the stuff that he's putting out in this field, the looks that he's putting out in this field, the schemes, Patrick Graham, DC of the year, has to be. And I think he's going to even step his game up even more against the Cardinals. And you're going to see uh, another squeaker of a win. So we're looking at, okay, we're at four and eight now from one and seven. Holy shit. Then the Browns, we are going to, I'm not going to say this lightly. I'm going to stare right into the camera so people know I'm dead goddamn serious. We're going to crush the Browns. 
we are going to decimate the Browns. It's going to be dirty. Would have loved to have OBJ back in the house so that we could shut his ass down and show everyone we won the trade. Would be great. But this is the who won the trade game. So people are going to be focused on Zeitler and Peppers. Um, where's Olivia Vernon? I don't know. Probably hurt. So can't focus on him. OBJ's hurt. Oh, weird. <laughs> so, um, and I think Dexter Lawrence was the other guy. So, I mean, if you're saying we lost the trade, sure. Go ahead and say that. Why not? But I think we come out and we really stick it to the Browns, who I don't think are that great a, a team. I really don't. I mean, no, they're not. We just have to stop the run game, and guess what? They have a great run game. Well, guess what? We have a better rush defense. We have run stuffers out the gills, so good luck with that, Cleveland. Baker Mayfield versus Daniel Jones. Oh, my God. I'm getting – I just want – I don't want to even play all these other games. I just want to play this game, December 20th, right before Christmas. Early Christmas is coming early for that ass, Baker Mayfield. And then uh, the following week, we play at Baltimore. That is a loss. <laughs> and then the finale, we have Dallas, uh, which unless they trade for Ryan Fitzpatrick, which they didn't, I don't think. I feel confident going against Andy Dalton or Ben DiNucci. And uh, I think we come out with a win there. So it's looking like just what I said in my prediction for the season, seven and nine. You're looking at a loss at Seattle and a loss at Baltimore. And every other one of those games is fucking winnable and should be won. So all you all you haters saying 2 and 14, what? No. We were uh 1 and 7 in the first half. I think we can go on a run and go 6 and 2 in the second half. And yeah, I know. Bonkers bananas nuts. But 7 and 9 should be and could be good enough for the NFC East title. I think we win the NFC East. And I think we host the five seed. Now, currently at one and seven, we have a four percent chance of winning the East NFC <laughs> East and a ninety-six percent chance of of missing the playoffs completely. But given everything that Joe Judge has put into this team and the way the players are responding, I just don't I don't see us backing down. I see us putting it all in, and I think the fact that as long as there's a percent chance to win that, uh, you know, 4% might as well be 94%. So projections for the playoffs, Seahawks as the one seed bucks as the two seed, as I mentioned three seed, the NFC North winner, it's going to be either the Packers or the bears. I would honestly, I don't know why, but I want to give the edge to the bears. I don't know why. I just think they got a little something special going on there, and I think Foles has got a couple more tricks up his sleeve. And the Packers have not looked that great the past couple weeks. Unless I'm mistaken, they lost to the Bucks, they lost to the Vikings, and now they go up against the uh, the Niners on Thursday night, tomorrow night, which is technically tonight. Holy shit, it's 12.30 in the morning. But... uh yeah, I don't, I'm not sold on the Packers. And then you have the NFC East winner. It could be the Eagles, the Giants. I'm saying Giants, 7-9. And the 7th seed would be the Rams, and the 6th seed would be the Cardinals. And then the 5th seed would be the Saints. Now, why am I making such a big deal out of this? Well, 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 the last time a division winner 
was seven and nine. It was the 2010 Seahawks winning the NFC West. They end up hosting the New Orleans Saints at Seattle, and Beastquake happened. Are we due for a repeat? Are the Giants going to sneak in a seven and nine division winner, host the Saints, and then shock the goddamn world to send Drew Brees into uh, a retirement home feeling awfully down on himself? So that's the Giants. Let's talk Mets. Steve Cohen is officially the Mets' new owner. The New York Mets' new owner. Can't be more excited. He's already on Twitter. Twitter. His wife is on Twitter. He's asking for feedback. He's making conversation. I don't. Are the Will Ponds even on Twitter? I don't know. So uh, the owners approved. He got the votes. He's now the official owner. The purchase should be completed sometime next week. I think officially, officially, official but very excited about what he's going to bring to the ball club. So excited that we're no longer, and it couldn't, he couldn't have picked a better time too, because we'll get into this in a little bit, but, uh, and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to basically like rush and sprint through the Mets section. So buckle up. The gist and the theme of the Mets section of this podcast is very simple because there were no fans in the stands last year in 2020. Revenues are down and there's, there's going to be a lot of tightening of belts because the revenue is not where it's at. And we're not quite sure what the forecast is going to be for 2021. Are there going to be fans in the stands again? A lot of murkiness, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of doubt. So the teams that are not big market teams with big budgets or big wallets are going to be not picking up player options on some pretty big names or some uh, names that are successful. And here comes old multi-billionaire Steve Cohen who don't give a damn about your luxury tax scooping them up. So that's basically what we're looking at here with this, uh, with this, the Mets section here. So um, Anthony DeComo said that Mets are the, uh, have extended the $18.9 million qualifying offer to Marcus Stroman. Uh, Marcus Stroman is more most likely to decline that, which means that the Mets will receive a pick, compensatory draft pick, if he signs elsewhere. So what if we don't sign Stroman? If we don't re-sign uh, Marcus Stroman, this is via the New York Daily News. I think it's Disha. She says that Major League Baseball trade rumors predicted Marcus Stroman could land with the Angels on a four-year, $68 million deal. Um the Braves, Nats, Giants, Phillies, and White Sox are also reportedly in the mix. And uh, so where, where do we go from there? Well, we do have a couple of relievers coming back. Dylan Batantis, Yuck, and Brad Brock. Eh, they both exercised their player options for 2021 to remain with the team. But as far as who goes to replace Stroman, the names are not exactly making the sorority girls scream. Charlie Morton, Masahiro Tanaka, James Paxton, Kevin Gaussman. Of those two, I'd say Tanaka and Paxton are the most recognizable for me, at least. I don't see us going after Tanaka um, due to that weird injury that seems it's, it's going to erupt eventually, volcano style, at some point in the most horrific fashion. James Paxton has been kind of hit or miss, I believe. And uh, Disha thinks that Charlie Morton poses an intriguing option for the Mets. He's going to be 37, which is kind of scary, but he's from Flemington, New Jersey. 
and uh, he became one of the best starters on the weak market when the Rays declined his 21 option last week. Of course, the Rays had one of the, the lowest payrolls in baseball. Went to the World Series. Holy shit. So they're probably not going to be picking up a lot of player options on some of the more expensive contracts because they just can't afford it. But who can afford it? Uncle Stevie. Morton compiled a 3.34 ERA and a 1.15 whip over the last four years with the Astros and Rays. And he's also limited the long ball with a 28.4% strikeout rate and ability to induce ground balls. So, I mean, you know, if we whiff on a lot of the options, I, I wouldn't mind, you know, taking a flyer on Morton as a fifth starter, along with Jose Quintana. Uh, and then the other guy, 29-year-old starting pitcher Kevin Gaussman, um, could be a three-year, $39 million deal. I didn't really see anything that stuck out to me. I mean, he's got an ERA of around four-something, four-and-a-half, and probably like eight or nine strikeouts over nine, but I don't know. Anything can be better than Por Porcello and Waka, which I've been saying week after week after week. So we we have some options, basically, is what we're saying. I don't think we're gonna we're gonna get Tanaka. Paxson's interesting. Wouldn't mind delving into that a little bit more, dipping my toe into that. What if the Mets don't sign George Springer? Great question. We talked about Byron Buxton. I'm out on Byron Buxton. Um, but the the other option, number two option, Jackie Bradley Jr., where he doesn't have a ton of accolades like Springer. He was an all-star in 16. He was a gold glover in 18. His career averages, his slash line is 239, 321, and 412, 732 OPS. So it's not, you know, he's not exactly lighting off fireworks in my panties, but um, is he better defensively than Brennan Immel? The answer is probably yes. And, uh, you know, who knows if, uh, you know, a new uniform brings out Brings out the the offensive numbers for him. Trevor Bauer has rejected the Cincinnati Reds qualifying offer, offer, but not a surprise. But he's open to return there. He's also open to play for any team that will pay him a lot, shit ton of money. So it's like, uh, in a way, it's a little frustrating because it's like, can you just narrow it down a little bit so I don't have to panic every day of my waking life? Um, players have until November 11th to decide whether to accept a qualifying offer. I, th I don't know that anyone does other than I would guess there would have to be someone that's like on a playoff caliber team that didn't win, didn't go to the world series or didn't win the world series last year. That's like, you know what? I'll stick it out one more year. Cause I believe I want a ring on my finger. What if we don't get JT Realmuto? Oh my goodness. We're probably not going to get him. I hope we don't get him after his comments about how he wants to stay in Philly and not play for New York. Well, we don't need you. So what are we doing instead? We also have a big prospect coming up whose ETA is like 2022. Is it Sanchez? No, that's not it. But uh, yeah, so we have a top 30 prospect catcher. Um, our top catching prospect should be coming up to the bigs in a couple of years. So it's like, I don't know that we should be sinking a ton into uh, an older, you know, a long-term deal into an older catcher when we have a top prospect coming up. So why not have a bridge gap, a stop gap with James McCann, Chicago White Sox catcher. He was an all-star in 2019. He hasn't played more than 118 games in a season, but as a catcher, it's like, eh, I don't know, you know, 
got to save them knees. His career averages, uh, I don't have them. <laughs> Sorry, wrote it down, didn't do anything with it. But in, uh, last year, he played 31 games and uh, had a slash line of 289, 360, 536, and an OPS 896. Those are the best numbers of his career. Again, it was a very small sample size, so take it or leave it. His 2021 projections, 13 doubles, 11 home runs, 35 RBIs, 251 average, 315 OBP, 418 slugging, 733 OPS, which, I mean, is better than what Ramos was giving us in 20, but is pretty much the same, if not a little bit worse than what Ramos gave us in 2019. Hmm. But again, it w- I would imagine it would have to be like a short-term deal something that would help us get to our top prospect when we call him up. Metsmerized online had a bunch of more uh, a bunch of trade targets that I have not talked about yet. You Darvish is at as as an honorable mention. He you led the league in wins in 2020 with 8, led the but he also led the league in home runs allowed in 2019. He averages uh I mean, he does average 11 or more Ks per 9 but he is 34 years old. Is that someone you want to take uh, a chance on? I think I would be more inclined to go with him over Morton, but just for the name, brand name recognition. Nolan Arenado, his contract is just uh, unfathomable. 35 mil a year, something like that. And there's also the concern that his splits aren't great. He's he's uh, phenomenal at cores, just putting up just like, uh, cartoon numbers, and then he's not even close to that uh, kind of level away. Not to say that he's horrible, but he's more average when playing uh, away. So is that does that how's that going to translate when he's playing in Queens for you know eighty some odd games a year and not cores at all? Is he just average? But he is an all star, a multiple time all star, Gold Glover, Silver Slugger, and he will be thirty. So it's possible that. We could, we could, if we trade for him, we could have him. I don't know if it's a player option or a club option through 2026. So it's like you basically you got your your third base is locked down for the next half decade. Not bad. Um, and then Charlie Blackman was put on the list. Four time All Star, two time Silver Slugger, but he'll be 34, and I think he's on the decline. You know, don't at me or do at me. Next up, uh, there's five, six players mesmerized online, things we should consider trading for. The first is Carlos Carrasco, Indians pitcher, two years, $24 million, with a third-year vesting option. He's one of the most consistent starting pitchers in the American League throughout his career, pitching to a 3.77 ERA across uh, more than 1,200 innings pitched. Um, MMO seems to think that we should try and get him in the Lindor package, what we would have to give up for him would be a lot, but it's like we've got a lot. You could potentially move Rosario and Davis and Prospect and one more, I think. But I I think we've got enough to make that offer. That's a little package deal. Next up would be Danny. Speaking of package deal, Danny Duffy and Salvador Perez. This is a Royals pitcher and catcher. A one-year combined $29.7 million. Uh, Salvador Perez is six-time. I mentioned this last week, but or a couple weeks ago, six-time All-Star, five gold gloves. 
Duffy has never pitched more than 100 innings in a single season, and over the last three seasons, he's pitched to a 4.68 ERA, 1.398 whip. And while those numbers are uh, a bit jarring and unsettling, they are still better than what we've been <laughs> trotting out there, at least in 2020. Um, so I'm I'm all for it, especially if we're going to get Perez. I mean, that's just like, yeah, that'd be huge. Number three would be Starling Marte. I don't see this happening, but who knows with the current climate and market. One year, $12.5 million. The Marlins just exercised this option, team option, last week. Why would they exercise that option if they're looking to dump contracts? I guess to make a trade with us. But who who does that? Who makes intra, in, within division trades? Astrobel Cabrera. Ay, ay, ay. Number four would be Lorenzo Cain. Two years, $35 million. Uh, he's going to turn 35 years old. And he won a gold glove in 2019. I don't know that he's a fine one. I don't know that he's getting better with age. I don't know if I want to touch that. And then uh, number five, we have Kevin Kiermeyer from the Rays. Two years, $23.8 million with a $13 million club option. He's one of the best center fielders in baseball, 30-time gold glover. 31 years old, um, not really known for his bat, but still hit 368, 400, and 737 with two home runs in the World Series. Is that enough to convince you to make the move? Defensively, yes. Offensively, it's like, is one stretch of games enough? It was enough for Daniel Murphy. It was enough for Carlos Beltran. It's enough for us, possibly. Rising Apple had three trade destinations for um, Ahmed Rosario. The first is the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. Um, he, uh, uh, the writer here lists a whole bunch of pitchers that, that the Angels have. A lot of arms that are available for us. Starting pitcher Dylan Bundy. He's got one more season on his uh, on his contract. Reliever Noe, Noe Ramirez had a good 2019 season. Even better in 2020. Will be 31 under team control for three more years. 27-year-old hmm? reliever Kanan Middleton. Not so great 2020 but had an impressive 3.48 ERA uh, spanning four years under team control for three more years. And uh, this writer believes is a better option than Ramirez. Left-hand pitcher Hector Yan. Yan is someone uh, they might look at as well. Borderline top 10 prospect in the far Angels farm system. Top four pitching prospect. Uh, second best left-handed pitching prospect. Hmm. I don't mind that. And then uh, he's got an ETA of 2022 um, and did it well enough in the minors in 2019. They earned a 40-man spot in 2020. And then the last of the three trade destinations for Ahmed Rosario. Oh, sorry. The second of the three is uh, the Oakland A's. They have a bunch of arms that we could use probably. Starting pitcher Frankie Montas. Wasn't great last year, but quite effective in two seasons before that. Will be 28, set to make $2 million under team control through 23. Believers Birch, Smith, and Lou Trevino. Smith is 30, under team control for three more years. Um, yeah, I'm kind of out on Birch Smith after reading all that crap. But Lou Trevino, 29 years old, under team control for four more years and has uh, been a petcher, bitter petcher, a bitter petcher. <laughs> More booze, please. 
a better pitcher since making his debut. Reliever J.B. Wendelkin, 28 years old, under team control for the next four seasons. Been the most consistent of the lot, boasting a 1.80 ERA in 21 games. Hell yeah, don't mind that. Starting pitcher Grant Holmes, top 15 prospect in the Oakland's farm system. It will be 25 years old and uh, had an ETA of this past season. Starting pitcher James Caprillon, borderline top 10 prospect in the system, was able to feature in two games for Oakland this year. It will be 27. Right-handed pitcher Dalton Jeffries, 25 years old, already made his debut. Uh, second best pitching prospect. Network organization's best right-hand pitching prospect. Hmm. <laughs> I'm more inclined to trade for a guy that has been playing and has more team control and is somewhat young than a prospect who hasn't debuted yet. I don't know. Call me crazy. I got a thing. I'm like anti-prospect for some reason. Then the last of the three teams, trade destinations for Rosario, the, the Giants. They do have Brandon Crawford, but he is getting up there in age, and he has one more season left on his contract. Um, so they kind of want to be set up for the future, I would assume. There are uh, three Giants relievers the Mets could be interested in. Jarlan Garcia, Reyes Moranta, and Wande, Wandy Peralta. Garcia was uh, pretty good for the Marlins in 2019 and even better for the Giants in 20, boasting a 0.49 ERA and a 0.982 whip in 19 games. He'd be 28 years old and he's set to make $1.1 million next year and under team control for three more seasons. <sighs> Gets me nice and steamy. Maranta boasts of a very impressive 2.66 career, career ERA in three seasons. Will be 28 under team control for three more seasons. And then Peralta, 29 years old. Um, not very good or consistent as uh, Garcia and Maranta, but uh, has been effective. 3.27 ERA, 1.152 whip in 33 games. Uh, 1.1 mil and under team control through 23. So that those, I like that. Of those three destinations... I don't know if it will happen, though. Wouldn't you just, I don't know. Maybe they can groom Rosario, but I would feel like, I don't know. The Giants seem to be the best uh, match for that. And then there's trade destinations for, the Rising Apple also had trade destinations for Dom Smith. And I'm torn because initially I thought, okay, Smith's got to be the odd man out, right? Like if we gotta we gotta move some infielders to make way for an outfielder and some pit some arms, and we've talked about this like Smith or Alonzo. I don't think I, I mean it's insane to think that we'd be trading Alonzo, but he could Alonzo could be the guy that we're trading and not Dom Smith, given uh, Alonzo's problems at first defensively. So I don't know how much to like feed into this, but. All right, top three trade destinations for Dom Smith. Um, one of them is the Astros. Apparently, the Astros have a bunch of arms that we could be interested in. <laughs> I don't know. The next one is the Indians, and we could package him as part of the deal for Fran Francisco Lindor, which I don't hate. 
And then the first one was the the Rockies. Nolan Arenado owed thirty five million in twenty one has a player option at the end of the year. Um, even if even if Arenado opted out, the Mets would certainly try to resign him. If he doesn't opt out, he'll be owed the same thirty five million through the twenty twenty six season. But again, you got to feel like. We've seen his career splits, and when he's away from cores, it's just not the same deal. Would I still like him over what we currently have at third? J.D. Davis and Jimenez and McNeil? Yeah. It's a lot of money, though. A lot of money we could put towards something else when we could shuffle some people around the infield. That's why these trades for infielders... I'm not too high on trading our infielders for outfielders and pitchers. I am high on. So I'm talking myself into this Lindor deal. I was not, I was, I was immediately like, no, cause I'm so like lusty and frothy over, uh, Andre Jimenez, but I'm starting to open up, open up to it. Considering Jimenez could probably pay third. Or maybe you put Cano at third. And, ah, here we go again. Shuffle City. All right. Um, that's the show. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, another brief, quick, digestible mini episode. Not that long. If you can't pay attention for two and a half hours, then uh, Jesus Christ. See it. Consult a physician. <laughs> um, this coming weekend is my birthday. 40 years old, 40 goddamn years. Oh my God. And uh, I think we're going to the city of brotherly love. And we're going to, we're going to maybe play some golf on a simulator, throw some axes around, have some quality eats and just enjoy each other. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. And uh, I will talk to you all next week after a Giants victory. (laughs) Adios, muchachos.